human beings. Not a single piece of our anatomy protects us from those types of collisions. A human being will get concussed at 60 Gs. A common head-to-head -head contact on a football field? 100 Gs. God did not intend for us to play football. A hazing ritual over at Modern Day High School back in February left a young football player with a traumatic brain injury and a broken nose. And last month, the family of that player filed a lawsuit against the school and against the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange. Gustavo Ariano writes for the LA Times. He's here with KCRW's Orange County Line to tell us more. Hey, Gustavo. Hola, Steve. So tell us what you know about this, this hazing ritual called bodies. Is that right? At, at, uh, at Modern Day High. Yeah, so bodies is apparent. I'm not a football player, never was, but this was a hazing ritual that had apparently been going on for years where football players, the players on the team, they would face off against each other. And so they would hit, like punch each other, basically. But you couldn't hit below the belt and you couldn't hit above the neck. So hence you hit each other in your torso, on your back or whatnot. And you would go on until I guess someone cried uncle and then, all right, cool. You're part of the team. You're a brother. Let's, let's, let's go beat up some other people on the football field. All right. Not above the neck, not below the belt, but this guy whose family is suing had traumatic brain injury and a broken nose. That's above yeah. the neck. Yeah, yeah, no. And so I saw the video. It is not pretty to see. So player one, let's say player one is the one who's doing the punching. Player two is the one who is filing the lawsuit. So you see player one, who's 50 pounds heavier than player two, go at him. They're, you know, swinging. It's in the locker room. Uh, player two swings and misses. Player one throws him down to the ground and hits him with a right right on the head, then hits him a second time with the left. And as player two's holding himself at this point, you could see like a laceration, a bloody laceration on, on his uh, uh, eye. Then you see a sucker punch at that point. And then even at that point, the players who are, are, who are seeing this, the people who are looking at this in the modern day locker room, they're saying, chill, chill, chill. And you could tell, you know, during fights, when there's a fight, people usually circle around and they're hooting and hollering. There's kids looking at their iPhones. They're like so nonchalant. So it's it, to me, it looks like it's, this is completely something that goes on, and so it's, no, it's nothing that draws anyone's attention until you hear that third sucker punch. What do we know about how the injured, injured player is doing? I mean, he, he transferred out of modern day, right? Yeah, so uh, the father uh, uh, talked to my colleague Bill Plasky on the L.A. Times, and he said, look, he's... He's he still has this injury. He's you know, he transferred to another school. He part, he's participating in sports. So a lot of people are saying, well, you can't be that injured if you're still playing football. You can't be that traumatized. But that's not the point. I mean, according to the lawsuit, the father went to the coach, Bruce Rollinson, a legend in prep sports. And Bruce Rollinson laughed about the whole thing, allegedly saying, oh, if I had a hundred dollars for every time that my players uh, did bodies, I'd be a millionaire or something like that. Huh. They tried to talk to the principal. Francis Clare at Modern Day never heard anything back. Basically, the Modern Day, the, both the football program and the school just gave a big shrug to the young man's, to the, his son's injuries, which again was a broken nose, the lacerations you see, and the trauma, traumatic brain injury. Let's hear from Modern Day coach Bruce Rollison, who was on Channel 2 Sports Central with Jim Hill just uh, about a week ago after they won, and he just flat out deflected. Let's listen. You know what, Jim, I'm not going to talk about that, obviously. Let's talk about the athletes and, and, and what we accomplished last night and what we've been through to get here uh, with COVID and the spring season. 
that's the most important thing, and I don't have a comment about the other stuff. That's the most important thing, right? Oh. <laughs> has any has anyone at the school taken accountability, whether that be the football coach or coaches, the administration? Of course not. This is modern day. I mean, uh, modern. You know, so my column focused on if you think there's going to be anything happening with this student who got his nose broken. This is a school that has had to settle through the diocese of Orange multiple sex abuse cases over the past uh, 20 years this is where like the school administrators knew that people like you know people were having uh you know sexually molesting students and l- allowing people to quietly resign making jokes about it this is a school that uh, you know one of its principals michael harris has been the subject of numerous sex abuse claims now noted he has never had any criminal charges against them but he alone has had sex abuse cases totaling more than seven million dollars this is a school in a diocese that has actively covered up for pedophiles who they uh, apply, you know, who they employ. So to think they're going to do anything about their football program, <laughs> not in a million years. That's why Coach Rollison, who, by the way, of course, can't talk about it because there's a lawsuit. But it's very telling how he calls it that stuff. Really? So one of your former players getting a broken nose by another uh, play, for, a player of yours or former players, you're just going to call it that stuff? That's just crass. We're, we're short on time, just seconds here, Gustavo, but the district attorney, Todd Spitzer, says the ritual does not meet legal standards for criminal hazing or felony assault. Why is that? Uh, he says it was mutual, uh, which is preposterous. I mean, I would ask Todd, and, you know, Todd listens to this, so what about Kim Pham, uh, Todd Spitzer? Was that also mutual? Because that wasn't the case when it happened there. That was another case where it involved two people fighting each other. All right. Keep us updated, please. Gustavo Ariano, columnist for the L.A. Times and, of course, our Orange County aficionado. Gustavo, as always, thanks. Gracias. The farmer in the dell, the farmer in the dell. Hi-ho, the dairy-o, the farmer in the dell. For decades, black farmers have been excluded from federal farm programs, a systematic pattern of discrimination that the U.S. Department of Agriculture acknowledged decades ago. And yet proposals to compensate farmers for past wrongs have languished in controversy and red tape. The most recent include the Biden administration's efforts to earmark such funds in its American Rescue Plan and now build back better. Special correspondent Fred DeSam Lazaro begins his report in northwest Kansas as part of our ongoing series, Race Matters. Walking down this dirt road brings Bernard Bates back to the highest and lowest points of his 84 years. Mm-hmm. This land behind you goes back generations in your family. Yes, mm-hmm. Go back to slavery. Dad was a good farmer. He was one of the best ones in Graham County. Dating way back to the 40s, Carla Bates Adams says her father was a prolific producer here in Nicodemus, Kansas, a rare enclave of black farmers whose ancestors settled here after they were freed from slavery. So there was more land. You own different chunks of land. North of the cemetery, there's another 80 acres. In the early 1980s, amid the historic agricultural recession and crop disasters that hit the Midwest, many farmers fell behind on their loan payments, including Bernard Bates. Bugs, hail, wind and rain, freeze and everything for three, four years in a row. When he approached the U.S. Department of Agriculture for relief, Carla Bates Adams says not for the first time he was treated differently. We know that the, the white farmers were getting the assistance, and the black farmers were not. They were getting all kinds of loans. 
The Bates then witnessed and even photographed the dismantling of their livelihood in foreclosure. That must have been very painful to witness. Tell me about it. They truly took, uh, you know, our livelihood, you know, and then left, you know, my parents to have to go on food stamps. Their land was subsequently sold off to white farmers. The Bates Farmstead is among millions of acres of land that black farmers have lost over the decades. In the 1920s, 14 percent of all farmers in the United States were African-American. That number is down to less than 1.5 percent today. There are men like Bernard that would still be farming because that's what he loves and that's what he wanted to do. Nicodemus resident Johnella Holmes is a retired professor and director of the Kansas Black Farmers Association. For decades, she says, they've been excluded from federal agriculture programs like price subsidies, disaster relief, and especially loans, the financial backbone of American agriculture. Those loans are just, they're just pivotal. Equipment is so expensive anymore that one single farmer, especially the small farmers, um, they can't afford that equipment. In 1999 and again in 2010, black farmers were offered limited compensation after a class action suit. But the settlement was marred by allegations of fraudulent claims on one hand and the exclusion of possibly thousands of legitimate claimants on the other. Bernard Bates was a plaintiff. And I had myself haven't got one dime, not a dime. The Biden administration has included several billion dollars in loan forgiveness and other relief for distressed and disadvantaged farmers in its Build Back Better plan. We know for a fact uh, that socially disadvantaged producers were discriminated against by the United States Department of Agriculture. Uh, we, we know this. Earlier this year, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack unveiled a similar $4 billion relief plan specifically for minority farmers in the American Rescue Plan. That triggered several lawsuits on behalf of white farmers claiming reverse discrimination, and it succeeded in suspending the program pending the outcome of the litigation. If, if a black farmer lived across the road and this bill went through, I see him get his mortgage paid off. It ticks me off because that was money stolen from me, given to him. John Stevens is a fifth-generation farmer in Pine County, Minnesota, and is a well-known advocate of the environmentally friendlier regenerative farming. Do you think that discrimination exists today against black farmers? As a federal system, I would say no. Now, when you go to your local office, sure. And that would go anyway, whether it's... It's white to black, black to white. I, yep, there's racist people all over this country. What are these plaintiffs not understanding? Oh, I think they understand. I think they just don't want to acknowledge the history. Professor Holmes says that history of discrimination has taken an enormous toll on black farm families that still felt today. We weren't able to pass on wealth. We weren't able to pass on a farm. And so to look at it and say, now your field is level, no, Bernard Bates's family, were, they were denied the opportunity to continue to farm. That didn't level the field. John Stevens says white farmers are as likely today to face rejection at the USDA or at a private lender. He says the key is to persevere. I don't want to hear your victim story. So what if, what if I discriminate against you on something? Is that going to stop you? If you're the government possibly, or you're the banker. Go to another bank. 
postpone it a couple years. If you want to be a farmer, if you want to be anything, just pick your bootstraps up and forget the rest of the world and do what you need to do. Well, I made my own straps and my own boots, <laughs> and I'm pulling them up. Angela Dawson farms just a few miles north of Stevens. Four years ago, she moved here in a career switch back to a family tradition that ended when her grandfather lost his farm. You have to have at least 1,000, maybe 2,000, 10,000 acres in order to really be a sustainable farmer, and that's something that I definitely didn't have access to. So she tried to join the booming business of organic farming, whose humanely raised meat commands higher prices and is therefore feasible on a small farm. But when Dawson, who has a degree in business administration, presented her business plan with her loan application, she says the USDA agent was not convinced. I was uh, really enthusiastic about the pigs, and she said, what are you doing here? What do you think they were really asking you? I felt like they were asking me, what makes me think I could do this? Despite an appeal, her application was rejected in a process that took 18 months, she says. Agriculture Department officials declined to comment specifically on this case. Dawson found a new passion, as lucrative as it is controversial. This one is a good one. Hemp. The plant is now legal to grow in all states. It's extract sold for medicinal use. My decision to go into hemp was driven by economics. For CBD hemp, the average farmer makes about $50,000 per acre. Dawson's farm is now home base of a 33-member cooperative of minority-owned farms across the U.S. This is the brain. This is the brain of the operation. Her name the co-op guides members growing hemp on how to monitor the crop so it meets licensing standards for medicinal cannabis. We use regenerative practices, but we also use technology, and we don't want people to get into farming to be poor. Business has been great, she says, but that raised a red flag at one local bank, which closed her accounts. The bank said that they thought I could be trafficking. So the criminal image that's associated with hemp and black people is really difficult for me to overcome. That's the rosin and the medicine. That so it's ever after, but we're still working on the happily part. Is it something that you would like to get back? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Also waiting for happily ever after, the Bates family, hoping by legal action or reparation to buy back the land and legacy that they say was unjustly confiscated. Bye. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Fred DeSam Lazaro in Nicodemus, Kansas. A terrible thing to waste. Environmental racism and its assault on the American mind. Written by Harriet A. Washington. Across the United States, communities of color face disproportionate exposure to pollution. Big polluters like refineries, factories, landfills, and factory farms were routinely built in non-white communities, exposing their residents to elevated health risks as a result. Recently, Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Regan traveled across Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas to meet with communities facing extreme pollution. He joins us now. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much. Glad to be here. During your trip, you talked to residents, advocates, community leaders, and others. What did you hear from people about how pollution is affecting their lives? You know, we heard a lot. Uh, I talked to moms in Jackson, Mississippi, whose children have been exposed to lead and drinking water, uh, visited a school uh, 
uh, was supposed to spend time with students uh, discussing environmental education and what we do. Uh, but the school was evacuated shortly before we arrived because of low water pressure. I talked with families in St. John's Parish who have been exposed to pollution for decades from refineries and other sources of pollution who are dealing with uh, cancer that spans three generations in one household. And so we really got a firsthand look at what some of these communities are dealing with and have been dealing with for quite some time. One of our member station reporters, Bobby Jean Mizick, uh, she talked to one of the residents in New Orleans who you talked to during your visit. Her name is Ledwina Hurst, and she's a breast cancer survivor living on a former toxic landfill. And, and what she said was that she was receptive to what you had to say and that she thought you would help. But she also said this. I hope that I'm not wrong again. Because we've had so many people to come back here and do a lot of injustice to us, Mm -hmm. which is not fair at all. What's your response to that? You know, my response is the uh, skepticism is well-founded. The government at many levels uh, have not delivered for these communities. This is a significant opportunity for the federal government to partner with state government, local government, and these communities on solutions that need to be acted on sooner rather than later. And so we understand that we have to rebuild trust. And now it's time for all of us to roll up our sleeves and solve these problems. You talked a little bit about how skepticism may be warranted because of the way things have happened in the past. The fact is that the the federal government has has known about um, these environmental justice issues for decades. President Clinton signed an executive order to address it in 1994. President Obama renewed focus on it during his administration. But yet these pollution disparities have persisted. Now, the Biden administration is promising to be aggressive about this, but what is going to be different now versus all of those other efforts? You know, what's going to be different? This administration um, has prioritized environmental justice, equity, and inclusion. Uh, EJ will be part of the DNA of EPA. Uh, It's a core principle, and we're going to use our full enforcement authority to enforce the laws that are on the books Uh, We're going to use the data that we have that demonstrates that certain communities have been and continue to be disproportionately impacted. But with the bipartisan infrastructure law, we now have record investments that can be made to help right some of these wrongs. You mentioned uh, the the infrastructure law that just passed. The EPA, as I understand it, is allocating about $7.4 billion in 2022 from that law to help states and tribes upgrade their water infrastructure. This has been a huge issue in places like Flint, Michigan and in Mississippi. If states are going to allocate that money, though, what tools does EPA have to make sure that this money is going to these communities that need it most? The first thing is I've rolled up my sleeves and I am prepared to work with every governor across these 50 states, Democrat and Republican, to be sure that we're getting these resources to those who need it the most. The second is almost half of the bipartisan infrastructure laws Uh, Nearly $44 billion in the state revolving funds are eligible for distribution as grants or fully forgivable loans. This is not 
the same as previous loans that would require some sort of match or some other criteria. So now with these grants or fully forgivable loans, there are communities that are qualified that have never been qualified before. So at EPA, we're prepared to provide technical assistance to these communities so that they have access to these funds. Couple that with a tour like Journey to Justice where the media is highlighting these disproportionate impacts and a coordinated partnership between EPA and the governors really creates an opportunity for that rising tide that we're all looking for. But is it still up to states to make it a priority for these communities to get these funds? Is it really going to be a situation where states could maybe overlook certain communities? Well, you know, we're going to encourage the states to focus on those who need it the most. And yes, there are there's a lot of the decision making authority that relies with the states. But as we partner with these governors, as we partner with these local mayors in these communities, as we raise awareness and bring attention to those who need it the most, we believe that the states will be positioned to respond accordingly. And it'll be our job to keep the pressure on to be sure that they do. EPA Administrator Michael Regan, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you all for having me. Dr. Francis Collins, who along with Dr. Anthony Fauci, has been a voice of calm during the pandemic, has just a few more weeks to go as director of the National Institutes of Health. And before he leaves, NPR's health policy correspondent Selena Simmons-Duffin wanted to talk with him about what the NIH does for Americans and whether the agency's focus on biomedical research under his leadership has left some work undone. Selena's here now to talk more about it. Welcome back. Hi, Audie. Collins has been director for 12 years. Where has he led the agency? Right. So Collins is 71. He's a physician and geneticist. He's known as a political bridge builder. He's grown the agency's budget. It's now $41 billion a year. That's a lot of taxpayer dollars going into NIH research. And much of it has gone towards biomedical research. Some critics have argued more of the focus should be on Americans' health in the broader sense, because Americans are sicker and don't live as long as people in other rich countries. And that has been true for years. And I understand that that's attributed to chronic diseases, poverty, and to some extent, a fragmented healthcare system. Certainly, but even wealthy Americans who don't smoke and aren't overweight are not as healthy as their counterparts in other countries. And in the U.S., children are more likely to die before age five than in other rich countries. And those facts, by the way, come from a 300-page report NIH actually requested and financed called Shorter Lives, Poorer Health. But research into why those things are true is not currently getting a lot of focus at NIH. And one former NIH division head suggested to me that for every $100 for NIH research, $1 should go into a fund called, hey, how come nobody's healthy? So I wanted to ask Collins about all of this and get his thoughts and his advice for his successor. It's a lot of ground to cover. Where Mm -hmm. did you start? Well, before we talked about the big picture, I asked Collins about what he has said is his chief regret as he steps down, persistent vaccine hesitancy during the COVID-19 pandemic. To have now 60 million people still holding off of taking advantage of life-saving vaccines is pretty unexpected, and it does 
make me at least realize, boy, there are things about human behavior that I don't think we had invested enough into understanding because we basically have seen the accurate medical information overtaken all too often by the inaccurate conspiracies and false information that circulates so rapidly on social media. It's a whole other world out there. Yeah. We used to think that if knowledge was made available from credible sources, it would win the day. That's not happening now. You mentioned the idea of investing more in the behavioral research side of things. Do you think that could happen, should happen? We're having serious conversations right now about whether this ought to be a special initiative at NIH is to put more research into health communications and how best to frame those so that they reach people who may otherwise be influenced uh, by information that's simply not based on evidence. Because hmm. I don't think you could look at the current circumstance now and say it's gone very well. Yeah. So let's step back from the pandemic. I mean, you have served as director for 12 years. You have a lot to be proud of. And even before director, running the Human Genome Project. But, you know, in that time, Americans haven't on the broader scale gotten healthier. I mean, they're sicker than people in other countries across the board, all races and incomes. We don't live as long. I just checked that when you were sworn in in 2009, life expectancy was 78.4 years, and it's been essentially stuck there. So does it bother you that there haven't been more gains, that Americans haven't kept up with other countries? And what role should NIH play in trying to understand what's to blame for these trends and what should be done to turn them around? Well, sure, it does bother me because in many ways, the 28 years I have been at NIH have just been an amazing ride of discoveries upon discoveries. But you're right. We haven't seen that translate necessarily into advances. Let's be clear. There are some things that have happened that are pretty exciting. Cancer deaths are dropping uh, every year by 1% or 2%. When you add that up over 20 years, uh, cancer deaths are down by uh, almost 25%. And that's a consequence of all the hard work that's gone into developing therapeutics based on genomics as well as immunotherapy that's come along and made a big dent in an otherwise terrible disease. But we've lost ground in other areas, and a lot of them are, in fact, a function of the fact that we don't have a very healthy lifestyle in our nation, and particularly with obesity and diabetes. We haven't apparently come up with strategies to turn that around. Uh, the other main reason for seeing a drop uh, in life expectancy other than obesity and COVID uh, is the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, we at NIH are working as fast and as hard as we can to address that one as well. In all of these instances, as a research enterprise, because that's our mandate, it feels like we're making great progress, but the implementation of those findings runs up against a whole lot of obstacles in terms of the way in which our society operates, in terms of the fact that our healthcare system is clearly not even-handed. It's full of disparities, full of racial inequities. We're not at NIH able to reach out and fix that, but we can sure shine a bright light on it. Some of the, the reasons why Americans tend to be less healthy than people in other countries do get political pretty quickly, like healthy environments and gun injuries and drug overdoses and suicide and maternal health. I mean, all of that is quite charged. But the research is important. So, you know, you're stepping away from the director role 
Do you have any guidance or thoughts for your successor on how to get that research done, the research that's not universally potentially embraced on both sides of the aisle? I think the guidance is you have to look at all the reasons why people are not having uh, a full life experience of health and figure out what we, as the largest supporter of medical research in the world, should be doing uh, to try to understand and change those circumstances. A lot of this uh, falls into the category of health disparities. It is shameful that your particular likelihood of having a certain lifespan depends heavily on the zip code where you were born. And that is a reflection of all the inequities that exist in our society in terms of environmental exposures, uh, socioeconomics, uh, social determinants of health, etc. We actually want to try pilot interventions to see if some of those things can be changed. But that's about as far as we can go. Again, if there's a major societal illness right now of tribalism and over-polarization and hyper-partisanship about every issue, Probably the NIH is not well positioned all by ourselves to fix that. We have an urgent need, I think, across society to recognize that we may have lost something here, our anchor to a shared sense of vision and a shared sense of agreement about what is truth. The voice of outgoing NIH director Francis Collins and NPR Selena Simmons-Duffin. Tell us what happens next. We don't know a lot. There has been no interim director named, and President Biden has not nominated a replacement. So a lot is up in the air. And Collins confirmed to me he's stepping down before the end of the year. The appearance of the Omicron variant has not changed those plans. That's NPR Selena simmons and Thank you so much for your reporting on this. You're dirt. We think you're dirt, Paul. Who is we? The West. All the superpowers, everything you believe in, Paul. They think you're dirt. They think you're dumb. You're worthless. I'm afraid I don't understand what you are saying, sir. Oh, come on. Don't bullshit me, Paul. You're the smartest man here. You got them all eating out of your hands. You can own this freaking hotel. Except for one thing. You're black. You're not even a nigger. You're an African. Omicron, the new variant of COVID-19, has now been detected in dozens of countries around the world. While we do not know where the variant started, its emergence highlights global disparities in vaccination rates, which experts predicted would allow the coronavirus more opportunities to mutate and spread. Here's how South African President Cyril Ramaphosa put it recently. The emergence of the Omicron variant should be a wake-up call to the world that vaccine inequality cannot be allowed to continue. Until everyone is vaccinated, everyone will continue to be at risk. We're joined now by Saad Omer, epidemiologist and director of the Yale Institute for Global Health, to talk about the challenges many poorer nations still face in their vaccination efforts. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. There's been a lot of focus on the vaccination rate in Africa because that's where Omicron was first detected. Some estimates have placed the number of people who have gotten at least one dose of a vaccine there at 10 percent, while it's it's over 70 percent in the U.S. and Canada. Is that disparity fueled by a supply issue or are there other factors at play? Until recently, supply was the main issue. But supply projections have improved, 
even though the number of doses in country are still low, we are now focusing on some of the other factors uh, that have emerged as bottlenecks. And these factors include fragile health systems, the fact that these countries weren't able to build their capacity due to uncertainty in supply and vaccine acceptance. Can we dig a little bit more into that infrastructure issue? Uh, President Biden's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, said recently that many of the doses that have been shipped have not been used and that some African countries have told the U.S. to stop sending vaccines right now because they haven't been able to use what they've received. So, So what kind of support or infrastructure is really needed to get shots in the arm quickly? Who's in a position to do that work? You know, some of these statements make it sound that uh, African countries cannot absorb these vaccines, even if these vaccines are delivered. Just to be clear, if you are a low and middle income country and you don't know which vaccines are going to be given to you and how much you cannot plan and you cannot just hire people to let them sit around. You cannot order the right kinds of freezers. You don't have the money to throw at uh, this problem. And so because of that, now that vaccine supply is improving, they are taking a little bit of a breather in, in terms of saying, look, give us a second to increase that capacity and then uh, give us a little bit more vaccine. I'll remind people that even in the U.S., for the first few months, we have had these kinds of issues where the supply was increasing and we didn't have enough access in communities uh, where the vaccine was needed most. And so there needs to be an investment in helping these countries build uh, the delivery infrastructure and focus on end-to-end solutions of getting vaccines into arms. About vaccine hesitancy, it's definitely been an issue here in the U.S., and the Africa director of the World Health Organization has said it's a factor in the rollout there, too. How big a factor is it compared with these other factors that we talked about? So we actually measured the baseline vaccine hesitancy or acceptance in uh, many parts of the world right before the start of uh, immunization campaigns around the world. So we did a multi-country study with had 10 low and middle income countries in Africa and South Asia uh, and Russia and the U.S. And this study was done in late 2020. And what we found was at that time, overall, that vaccine acceptance was higher at baseline in low- and middle-income countries. Since then, partially, but not completely due to supply uncertainties, uh, due to the fact that countries could not promote vaccines because they didn't want to create more demand without having the supply, slowly vaccine acceptance has gone down in several low- and middle-income countries. We need to invest in vaccine communications, vaccine acceptance, But we need to make sure that that's not used as an excuse for not having enough doses because doses are necessary to get uh, people protected. In May 2020, we did a national study in the U.S. to show that the U.S. vaccine demand was a bit soft, that not everyone will accept the vaccine. We knew that, but it was never used as an excuse for have fewer doses and rightfully so. 
Do you feel like there is a need for supply, but also for education campaigns to help combat whatever hesitancy that there might be? Is there basically a need for both? Absolutely. So that's that's the next step. The U.S. has worked with partners like UNICEF uh, and WHO in the context of smallpox, in the context of Ebola, in the context of polio. In polio, the so-called stop TB training, which is the mainstay of field efforts of polio elimination and eradication, that includes vaccine acceptance, is heavily supported and some parts are run by the CDC in collaboration with UNICEF, etc. So, so there are avenues for investments in this area. Dr. Saad Omer, Director of the Yale Institute for Global Health, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Medical apartheid. The dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. The World Health Organization has warned rich countries against hoarding coronavirus vaccines in their response to the spread of the Omicron variant. This comes as wealthier nations are handing out booster jabs while many poorer countries are struggling to give even one dose to the old, the sick and those looking after them. Kate O'Brien is the WHO's vaccine director. As we head into whatever the Omicron situation is going to be, there is risk that the global supply is again going to revert to high-income countries hoarding vaccine to protect, in a sense, in excess, their opportunity for vaccination and a sort of no regrets kind of approach. I spoke to our correspondent, Imogen Folks, and I put it to her that wealthy nations were doing the opposite of what the WHO had hoped they would do. That's right. I mean, I think we know that the WHO has said right from the start that we need to go synchronised tackling this pandemic. And that means all countries vaccinating um, on a priority basis at the same time. So health workers, the elderly, the most vulnerable first, and not have perhaps the wealthy countries with loads of vaccines and everybody getting one when they want them and other parts of the world waiting and waiting and waiting, including health workers who are dealing with many, many people. Um, Unfortunately, we've got the latter, haven't we? And what uh, epidemiologists, virus specialists will tell you is that the longer a virus circulates, the more mutations you're going to get, um, which could be more serious, could evade your existing vaccines, things like that. Now we have Omicron, Was it the wake-up call that wealthy countries needed to start sharing more? Apparently, no. It seems to be that they are uh, going as fast as they can towards offering boosters to their entire populations while lower-income countries are still waiting for their first uh, vaccines. So even health workers in lower-income countries can't get the shots they need and their lives are therefore at risk. Um, But this warning from the WHO... It's likely to fall on deaf ears, isn't it, when it comes to wealthy countries? So far, it seems that way. We see that uh, the United Kingdom, United States and Europe are rolling out boosters, not even after six months, where there is some data that shows the vaccine's efficiency wanes a bit, not a whole lot for those of us who are lucky enough to be healthy. Um, But in UK, for example, after three months now, it seems boosters are being offered. 
And this is really, you know, what the WHO is saying is that you're uh, the analogy uh, a WHO expert makes for this is you're offering a second life jacket while other people are in the water around you drowning. And so it's not necessary. Get the other people vaccinated first, then think about your boosters. Uh, and Africa really is suffering from the shortage of vaccines. And that problem's being compounded by the fact that even the vaccines that are being delivered to Africa, often some of them are very close to their expiry date. That's absolutely right. I mean, interestingly, just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to one of the senior people in charge of this COVAX program, which provides vaccines. It's a WHO's program to provide vaccines to low-income countries. He said he just got off the phone with a very large African country who'd been told they'd been they were going to get lots of supplies of vaccines in the next couple of days, but they were expiring in 10 days. Now, these are vaccines which need end to end cold chain if it's Pfizer, for example, or Moderna. You know, this would challenge even the wealthy country to distribute them. And now we hear reportedly that Nigeria had to discard a million doses because these things were basically dumped on them and they did not have enough warning, enough time to distribute them before they expired. We have had a relatively good history of looking at suicide in, in Native American, American Indian populations, because there's high rates there as well. But specifically black Americans, the rates have been going up faster than they have in white Americans. But we're recognizing more and more that risk for suicide is up there and increasing for black Americans, especially, especially younger, younger black, black, black males. males. In the white population, we see suicides more in middle age and sort of very old, like after 85. But the risk period is highest for black Americans around age 20. And that's arguably much more tragic to, to lose someone so young. Black brother. Black brother hell. I've been reading an advisory this morning from the U.S. Surgeon General. The paper from Vivek Murthy is called Protecting Youth Mental Health. It argues that the pandemic multiplied the mental health challenges facing young people all the time. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy is on the line. Surgeon General, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Steve. Good to be with you again. Uh, okay, so anecdotally, I think we all understand the price of isolation, of remote learning, of general stress, or even of a death in the family, which many people have faced, millions of kids have faced over the past couple of years. But is it clear to you statistically or academically that there is a problem here? Well, the simple answer is yes, Steve. There's a problem now, and there was actually a great crisis with youth and mental health that we were facing before the pandemic. And consider these numbers, Steve. Before the pandemic, one in three high school students reported persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. That's a 40% increase from 2009 to 2019. In a similar time frame, suicide rates went up 57% among youth 10 to 24. And we've also seen that during the pandemic that rates of anxiety and depression have gone up. So this was a challenge before. The challenge has gotten worse. And I believe that this is a, a critical issue that we have to do something about now. We can't wait until after the pandemic is over. And that's why I decided to issue the Surgeon General's advisory. I'm almost afraid to ask why you think the numbers are going up so dramatically even before the pandemic. I'm sure there are many causes, but can you zero in on one that's on your mind? Well, I do think that many children and young adults were struggling with loneliness and isolation before the pandemic arrived. That worsened for many, but it was a problem that was in the shadows, uh, one that was affecting people across the age spectrum. 
But I think, Steve, if you really want to understand what, what is driving it, we also have to recognize that kids increasingly are experiencing bullying, not just in school, but online, that they're growing up in a popular culture and a media culture that remind kids often that they aren't good looking enough, thin enough, popular enough, rich enough, frankly, just not enough. Uh, and there's an extraordinary amount of stress and trauma that children are experiencing these days, whether it's the stress of gun violence, the specter of climate change, the polarization and conflict uh, that seems to be growing in society, or racism and the racial reckoning, especially in the last couple of years that we've been going through as a country. So you put all of this together, along with the growing influence of social media, which has been positive for some but harmful for others, and you have, unfortunately, the negative impacts on youth mental health that we've been seeing. I want to follow up on social media because you attempt to spend a lot of time in this report on what different communities and groups can do. And one of your categories is what social media, video gaming, and other technology companies can do. So what can they do? So they have an important role to play. Technology, and I should just say we lay out 11 sectors, uh, you know, including technology companies, but also including individuals, families, schools, workplaces, sure. healthcare settings that all have an important role to play here. But with technology companies in particular, this is a time where we need them to step up and, number one, acknowledge where harm is happening to our children. Number two, they've got to be transparent with data on the harms and benefits uh, so that we can understand which uh, children in particular are most at risk. But most importantly, we need them in the long term to and short term to design platforms that strengthen youth mental health. The current business model, Steve, of most uh, platforms is built on how they maximize time spent, not time well spent the time spent. And we need these platforms to be designed to strengthen the mental health of, of our kids, to make them better. Uh, and right now we're conducting this national experiment on our kids with social media, and it's worrisome to me as a parent. One of the people conducting that experiment is Adam Mosseri, the head of Instagram, who has to testify before Congress tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken. And some people will recall there were leaked documents from Facebook, which controls Instagram, leaked documents showing internal studies about harm that was done to people using these platforms. Uh, Facebook executive Monica Bickert was on this program, and she argued, wait, 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 this is a study of a few dozen kids on Instagram. Instagram had lots of different effects, some of them negative, but some of them positive. So so let me ask you, do you feel you know enough to be sure that social media is a problem here? Well, we know enough to know it's a problem for some kids. But what we need to do is to see and understand the data more thoroughly to know exactly who those kids are and what the extent of the harms are. And this is where transparency from the platforms is so important. Uh, but I also wanted to say, Steve, that as much as technology has an important role here, what we are calling for in this advisory are much broader changes as well. We're asking for individuals to take action to change how we think and talk about mental health. So people with mental health struggles know that they have nothing to be ashamed of and it's okay to ask for help. That stigma is so powerful still around mental health, something I experienced as a young person who struggled with mental health. I didn't know that I could ask for help and I was ashamed. But we're also calling for expanded access to mental health care, for increases in mental health counselors in schools and investments in social emotional learning curricula in schools as well as finally for parents to, for people to invest in relationships in their life, recognizing that it is our relationships with one another, Steve, that are some of our most powerful buffers to stress and greatest supports for our mental health and well-being. What was your struggle when you were young, Surgeon General? Well, you know, as a young child, I, I was very shy and had a difficult time making friends. And I struggled a lot with with loneliness and a sense of isolation with anxiety. We certainly when uh, it came time to go to school, I wasn't nervous about tests. I was nervous about feeling 
isolated and alone. Uh, I unfortunately had to also deal with a lot of bullying as many kids did uh, and still do uh, when I was in middle school. And But with all of that, I felt this same sense of shame, Steve, like it was somehow my fault. Uh, even to this day, even though I have parents who I know unconditionally love me, I never felt comfortable telling them uh, about it because I thought, you know, again, that this was my fault, that I did something wrong. And I didn't know where to go for help, Steve. And I don't want that to be the reality for my children who are four and five and growing up, uh, you know, in this very complicated world. I don't want that to be the reality for kids like the ones I met yesterday at King Drew High School in L.A. who told me story after story about how they have struggled uh, with anxiety and depression and loneliness and have been unsure about where to get help. So I believe this is a, a moral imperative for us to address the crisis of youth mental health uh, we can't wait any longer. Uh, our kids' health, their well-being, their future depends on it. As you're talking, I'm remembering the writer Brian Broom, who wrote a memoir and was on this program, and he said, quote, I knew from very young that I was supposed to be tougher than other men. Black men, mm. who's black, were supposed to be more masculine. In about 20 seconds, what advice would you give to someone who's in a community that feel that they feel a kind of cultural pressure to just keep it all quiet? Hmm. Well, I would say first, if you are struggling with your mental health, you are not alone. Many people are. You are also not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. We all struggle with our mental health. And asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength. Vivek Murthy is the United States Surgeon General. Surgeon General, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Steve. Good to be with you. The Surgeon General today has put out a new report on protecting youth mental health. You know niggas die for equal pay, right? You know when I work, I ain't your slave, right? You know I ain't shucking and jobbing and high-fiving. You know this ain't back in the days, right? Earlier this year, we reported on a movement to confront historical acts of racial terror in a place you might not expect. Horrific lynchings occurred after the Civil War in the Deep South and the former Confederacy, but also in many border states, including Maryland. As special correspondent Brian Palmer reported, Maryland is now the first state to undertake a formal truth and reconciliation process to reckon with its painful and violent history. We'll speak with a historian about that, but we begin our update with an excerpt from our June report, which we need to warn you includes graphic descriptions of violence. The story is part of our ongoing series exploring hate, anti-Semitism, racism, and extremism. In the center of downtown Salisbury on Maryland's eastern shore, the historic Wicomico County Courthouse stands today as it did in 1931. Back then, this supposed Hall of Justice was the site of a brutal extrajudicial killing, the lynching of 23-year-old Matthew Williams. You know, he was a normal child. I mean, he played with his cousins. He loved going um, to watch pictures. And during the Depression, he had money in two bank accounts. He had a stable job, was employed, and he was able to maintain employment. Charles Chavis Jr. is a historian at George Mason University and the author of the forthcoming book, The Silent Shore, The Lynching of Matthew Williams and the Politics of Racism in the Free State. The horrific lynching of Matthew Williams was reported widely at the time, including in the Afro-American, a black-owned paper in nearby Baltimore. While there are differing accounts of what happened that day, what we do know is that Williams worked for a wealthy white business owner in Salisbury. After an altercation, Williams' boss was dead, and Williams himself suffered several gunshot wounds, but was still alive. 
Once word got out, a white mob formed at the hospital where he had been taken. The nurse in charge of the segregated black ward reportedly stepped aside to allow his abduction. There's a famous quote that's actually published in the Baltimore Sun where she says, if you're going to take him, take him quietly. The injured Williams was thrown from a hospital window and dragged several blocks to the courthouse. The white mob tortured, hanged, and then burned his body. The crime was captured in this drawing that ran in the Baltimore Morning Sun. Williams was not only lynched on the courthouse lawn, but his body was taken after, um, you know, when it was burned to the black section of Salisbury, um, put on display for um, onlookers to drive by while the um, local police department directed traffic. No one has ever been held accountable for his killing. Matthew Williams is buried somewhere in this cemetery, his grave unmarked. But after nearly 90 years since the lynching of this black man, the city of Salisbury is beginning to acknowledge its history of white racial violence. When the mob came for him, they faced little resistance. On a recent Saturday, a group of several dozen people gathered to retrace the path that the mob took as it dragged Williams to his death. From the hospital where he was kidnapped, still a medical center, across the Wicomico River to the courthouse lawn. The occasion was the unveiling of a sign memorializing Williams an unidentified black man found beaten to death a day later and believed to be a victim of the same mob, and Garfield King, an 18-year-old black man lynched in the county in 1898. Today marks the 90th anniversary of the brutal lynching of Matthew Williams and the second man also believed to be a victim of the same white mob. Charles Chavis, assistant professor at George Mason University and the vice chair of Maryland's Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission, joined us again for more on the work being done in the state. Charles, tell me, what is the significance? I mean, it's symbolic, but why the marker in Salisbury? Why is it important? These are acts of symbolic reconciliation, and we see them as being a first step um, in a number of steps that have to take place in order for communities to heal and in um, Salisbury, where the Lynching Memorial um, Task Force um, has established this marker, it's so important um, that it is right there on the courthouse lawn where the act actually took place. I know the, the state uh, Maryland Lynching uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you've started doing public hearings, so to speak. Now, you cannot, you can't retry the case or the crime. You can't provide justice, so to speak, for the descendants of those people who were lynched. But what are those meetings like, or what are you hoping to get from them? So the meetings are um, deeply powerful, um, not only for those who witness it, but, but most importantly for the victims, the descendants of the victims, in which we've had the honor of connecting with and providing them with the space to share their the story of their loved ones. You went into this process and began researching the death of Matthew Williams, whose uh, the, the anniversary, the unfortunate anniversary is 90 years ago now. 90 years actually doesn't seem like that far ago, a long time ago, when we think of the word lynchings. I hope that it dispels the myth that these things, that lynchings took place at the hands of persons unknown. Um, I titled the book, my books, The Silent Shore, because this there's a myth of silence. What I'm able to uncover in the book is that... Um, 
white members of the community talked about this openly amongst themselves. We know that this lynching, the lynching of Matthew Williams, like most lynchings, was a state-sanctioned lynching, where you had state's attorneys and um, local law enforcement officers all complicit and culpable in the lynching of Matthew Williams. And um, there's still a silence, even 90 years later, that is palpable in this community. And um, it's very important for us to understand that if we're going to move forward and break the silence, then the truth has to be validated. And we have to make sure that those who are continuing to experience this um, have their opportunity to speak truth to power. Um, and um, the one, one, one other thing is important to understand. Ms. Shaney Shields, who's a Salisbury activist, she mentions that you know one of the reasons why people didn't speak up is because they worked for the family members of those who were involved. And to this day, some of those family members still hold power over this community. Um, and there's still that power dynamic at play, which speaks to the continued silence even 90 years later. Charles James, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Charlie, for having me. Listen, just touching on some real issues right here tonight. That's, That's, right. All. That's all. That's all. I want y'all to observe the excellence here. BX providing the Sonics, my man, Minnesota. I'm letting the beat ride out because it's a part that I like when it come up. You know what I'm saying? I take this time to say what's up to my family. <laughs> you hear that? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Just observe the excellence of that. That's many. Hey, back. Fall back. Uh-uh. With the guitars. It's hip-hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you got to do right by it. Minnesota. Ain't no black people in Minnesota. Lawyers presented opening arguments today in the trial of former Minnesota police officer Kim Potter. Last April, she fatally shot Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black man, during a traffic stop in a Minneapolis suburb. Special correspondent Fred DeSam Lazaro has this report on the events that led to today's trial. It's part of our ongoing series, Race Matters. And a warning, some of the images in this story are disturbing. Scream his name! In downtown Minneapolis last week, protesters rallied for the family of Dante Wright. Ain't no justice in this town! They took to the streets outside the Hennepin County Courthouse as jury selection got underway in the manslaughter trial of Kim Potter. Kim Potter is a killer cop and she needs to be imprisoned for a long time. No justice, no peace. Perhaps underlining the simmering tensions here, a car forced its way through the crowd. No one appeared seriously injured, and the protest went on. The Minneapolis-St. Paul area has been on edge for more than 18 months since the police killing of George Floyd and the unrest that followed. But that anxiety intensified last April in the waning days of Derek Chauvin's murder trial when Wright was killed during a traffic stop in the Minneapolis suburb of Brooklyn Center. Potter, a veteran of the force, and two other officers pulled Wright over for expired tabs and a hanging air freshener. The officers then discovered Wright had an outstanding warrant, and when they went to arrest him, he tried to get back in his car. The killing set off days of protests outside the Brooklyn Center Police Department. There were clashes between demonstrators and law enforcement who deployed rubber bullets, flashbangs, and tear gas. Meanwhile, Wright's family grieved publicly. There's never going to be justice for us. The justice would bring our son home to us. 
knocking on the door with his big smile coming in the house. Justice isn't even a word to me. I do want accountability, 100% accountability. Potter resigned from the department and was later charged with first and second degree manslaughter. During today's opening statements, prosecutors laid out their case. She was trained to be aware of the differences between her gun and her taser. This case is about an officer who knew not to get it dead wrong, but she failed to get it right. But Potter's lawyers argued mistakes can occur despite training and that she acted swiftly to protect fellow officers. Mr. Wright can stop. All he has to do is stop and he'd be with us. But he goes. She can't let him leave because he's going to kill her partner. And so she does taser, 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 and she pulls the trigger, believing that it was a taser. Potter will take the stand in her own defense. Some people want the criminal system to speak to really broad issues of, of justice and morality, and they want the trial to be about, was Kim Potter wrong? Rachel Moran is a law professor at the University of St. Thomas. She says the trial may be dissatisfying for members of the community clamoring for systemic change. The trial is going to hinge on, can the state show that she, not that she meant to kill him, but that she disregarded her training, that her act of grabbing the gun instead of the taser was so beyond the pale of what any reasonable officer would do that it could be considered reckless. Those are tough questions actually to answer and that's where the nuance exists. In the meantime, officials and residents are grappling over what's next for Brooklyn Center. The killing of Dante Wright seemed to bring to the surface issues around race and policing that had lurked just below in a city that rapidly has become Minnesota's most diverse. I feel very much personally responsible for uh, what happened uh, with the killing of Dante Wright. Mike Elliott is the mayor of Brooklyn Center. He's pushed a number of public safety reforms, including using unarmed civilians for certain traffic violations and moving funds from police to mental health specialists and social workers. When we looked at our 911 call data, we saw only 22% of the calls were criminal or crime-related. Almost 80% of the calls were either 43% general call for help, uh, about 11% met, uh, medical and mental health. We saw that there was a great need for us to have this alternative response system. But it's been a tough sell for you, hasn't it? It has, you know, as, you know, anything new <laughs> is a tough sell, right? After police unions warned the proposal would threaten public safety, the city council this week approved a compromise taking less money than originally planned from the police department. For now, all eyes are on the courtroom. I, along with everybody in our community, wants to see justice served. Justice doesn't just, though, mean what happens in the courtroom. It is preventing the kind of uh, conditions that can lead to a Dante Wright being shot and killed. A plea that Wright's mother, the state's first witness today, has repeated since April. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Fred DeSam Lazaro in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota.
This the city of Chicago. Chicago. Jesse Smollett made it all up. The actor and musician staged the hate crime against him. A claim of a noose around his neck, of two men attacking him on a frigid night in Chicago, dousing him with bleach, yelling, this is MAGA country. All lies. And his claim under oath that there was no hoax, that was a lie too. Here's Smollett walking into court in Chicago about an hour and a half ago, moments before the decision came down. After deliberating for more than nine hours, a jury found Jussie Smollett guilty on five of six counts of felony disorderly conduct. The judge announced the verdict last hour. The jurors heard six days of testimony from more than a dozen witnesses. But essentially, the criminal trial came down to whose story was more believable, Smollett's or the two brothers, he says, attacked him. Jussie Smollett could face up to three years in prison for each count. But it's unlikely that will happen since the actor has a clean criminal record. Now, here's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for lawyers to come outside of the courthouse. A short time ago, a prosecutor spoke, and the prosecutor said, we proved our case, Jussie Smollett is guilty. A judge set a hearing for late next month, and then a sentencing date will be determined later. This is a live look outside the courthouse. Our producers there have not said that Jussie Smollett came, has come out these doors. He and an entourage, along with lawyers, went in, but we haven't yet seen them come out. We'll wait for that, and should the lawyers take to the microphones, we'll bring it to you live. First, David Henderson, civil rights attorney, CNBC contributor. David, the problem here was the stories, one story had facts behind it and another story didn't. Yeah, Shep, that's exactly right. And honestly, you could tell this from the beginning because originally they were investigating in order to prosecute the people accused of attacking Mr. Smollett. There's no way they were going to reverse on him unless they thought they had a really strong case. And ultimately, when he took the stand, there were some things that he just couldn't explain, like that $3,500 payment. What do you suspect would, would happen now? I mean, the lawyers I've spoken with, and I think you've said the chances of pro probation are pretty good. But is there a case to be made that this was particularly egregious, according to the verdict of the jury? I mean, there was video of him going around this place the, the day before, setting it all up. One lie after another lie after another lie, according to the, to the jury's verdict. And all four were led to believe publicity. And what he's talking about here is a hate crime. He's staged a hate crime, a black gay man. Some might say he should have known better than that. Oh, Shep, I think that goes without saying that he should have known better than to do that. Now, in terms of your question about the sentencing, whenever you're a celebrity and whenever you've done something that's particularly egregious and notable, you run yourself the risk of being made an exception of and a judge trying to demonstrate, hey, we need to make sure this doesn't happen again. So we're going to make an example out of you. That's a risk that he does run. And it's hard to anticipate what the result of that's going to be. A normal person, I'd say they're looking at a year or less of probation. The judge, again, though, could make an exception for him. You know, these sorts of crimes do happen from time to time. And convincing juries that they did is, is, is sometimes very difficult. What does this do to, to, to justice in this lane in America? Is this, is this so egregious that it could be injurious in the big picture? You know, Shep, I think whenever you have cases like this that make the news where someone is found to have lied about a hate crime or about any type of a violent crime, as someone who's had to try these types of cases, 
it does always make you fearful of what you're going to be dealing with in a jury pool because people already start off being skeptical. But the counterbalance is every case gets dealt with one jury at a time, one trial at a time. So I don't think it's something that can't be overcome. It just does give an unnecessary negative perception about hate crimes. The local sheriff, H.C. Strider, a plantation owner and ardent segregationist, tried to have the body buried immediately in this small cemetery in Money, Mississippi, hoping no one in the outside world would ever find out what happened to Emmett Till. But Emmett's mother, Mamie, battled with Mississippi authorities and was able to have her son's body returned to Chicago so she could identify him before she buried him. Mamie Till was determined never to let anyone forget the brutal way in which her son was killed. She described the chilling story in one of the final interviews she gave before her death last year at age 81. I looked at the bridge of his nose, and it looked like someone had taken a meat chopper and chopped it. And I looked at his teeth because I took so much pride in his teeth. His teeth were the prettiest things I'd ever seen in my life, I thought. And uh, I only saw two. Where are the rest of them? They've just been knocked out. And I was looking at his ears, and that's when I discovered a hole about here, and I could see daylight on the other side. I said, now, was it necessary to shoot him? Now to the Justice Department officially closing the investigation into the 1955 murder of Emmett Till and saying a federal prosecution is not possible. Lindsay Davis, who spoke with Till's family, joins us with more on this. Good morning. Good morning. 66 years later, the wound has not healed for the family of Emmett Till. The news from the FBI provided no balm for their heartbreak. Several of his relatives described themselves as disappointed but not surprised that this case is finally being closed without bringing about any charges. For 66 years, we have suffered pain for his loss. This morning, more than six decades after the brutal murder of Emmett Till, the Justice Department announcing they have closed their latest investigation into the teen's lynching. What did you initially think that you would hear, Ms. Gordon? I thought that I would hear exactly what I heard, is that uh, there was not sufficient evidence to bring new charges, and therefore the case would be closed with no new information found. The FBI reopened the case in 2017 after historian Tim Tyson claimed in his book that Carolyn Bryant Donham, seen here in a 60 Minutes report from 2004, had taken back part of her claim that Till had grabbed her and allegedly made lewd comments in a Mississippi grocery store. But Donham denied recanting. And on Monday, the DOJ concluded that there was no sufficient evidence to support any new charges. Tyson telling ABC News in a statement that Donham told her attorney her story but did not mention any physical contact, which she described in court as more or less a rape attempt, which she told me, that part's not true. I was well aware of that. He had to meet his death in order for change to come in the world. That's, uh, that sparked the civil rights movement. And from that, we got a lot more... Uh, 
justice and a lot more privilege than we would have had. In 1955, Till was taken from the Mississippi home of his great uncle by Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam, the husband and brother-in-law of Donham. His tortured body was pulled from the Tallahatchie River three days later. Till's grieving mother, Mamie Till Mobley, then made the decision that changed history, holding an open casket funeral for Emmett, her only child, which thousands attended and fueled the civil rights movement. Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam were both tried and found not guilty by an all-white jury. A few months later, protected by double jeopardy, they confessed to the murder in a paid interview. Both men have since died. As for this notion that no one will ever answer for the death of their relative, the family, they are clinging to their faith. And three of the relatives quoted some Bible scripture yesterday after that press conference saying, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And at this point, they say, this is something that Mamie herself had said before her death. And knowing that his death, as tragic as it was and as painful as it was for them, for them as a family to say, but we know that it helped in some way in sparking the civil rights movement. That they feel in some way his death made more of an answer than perhaps his living mm. would have been. Yeah. We owe that young man so much. His suffering, his sacrifice changed this country. For sure. Um, Lindsay, thank you so much as always. Former Torrance police officers pleading not guilty to charges of conspiracy and vandalism. The L.A. County D.A.'s office leveling charges against the pair, alleging widespread problems within the Torrance PD. Eyewitness News reporter Jade Hernandez live in Los Angeles with more. Jade. We just learned from the DA's office and the Torrance police chief that they are investigating two incidents within the department involving all total 16 police officers. The DA says those incidents are fueled by hate and racism. The details are baffling. So let's take you to Torrance. These two former Torrance police officers pleaded not guilty today to charges of conspiracy to commit vandalism and vandalism. The officers were fired shortly after the investigation began last year. The two now former officers Christopher Tomsick and Cody Weldon are accused of spray painting an impounded vehicle seats with a swastika and a smiley face last year. L.A. County District Attorney George Gascon said he was not releasing any photos or images of the vandalism because the case is still ongoing. But he called a press conference today to discuss not just this criminal incident within the Torrance Police Department, but another incident involving hundreds of cases where 14 patrol officers exchanged anti Semitic and homophobic messages with each other. The newly appointed Torrance Police Chief Jeremiah Hart made it clear he's already relieved 12 of the 14 officers of duty involved due to misconduct. And he says the investigation isn't over with that incident either. So there's a whole host of messages. Um, I will take a strong stance that what we are looking at today um, is nothing even close to what may be minimized 
is locker room talk. We're talking about investigation that has to do with us looking at racism and hatred. We are at a time in our nation where hate is being propagated. We have seen an increase in hate crimes, uh, not only in our own hometown, but around the country. And it's unacceptable, but it becomes doubly unacceptable when we have the people that are sworn to protect all of us to engage in this behavior. Torrance Police Chief Jeremiah Hart is a 20-year veteran of the department and will soon mark 100 days in office. He says he will aggressively pursue any form of racism, bigotry, hate, or misconduct within the Torrance Police Department. Man, context of white supremacy. We'll do the, the introduction uh, right and proper in one second. Um, for the record... For like forever, ever, there is no chance like this is 100 percent. My opinion is never going to change. I think it is absolute lunacy. Individuals who say, oh, man, I don't check anything about the news, information about what's happening in the world. You know, read the news, watch the news, listen to the news. Oh, that's ignorant. You know, it's all lies. I don't do any of that checking the news. You know, that's just a waste of time. I think that is total nonsense. Dr. Francis Chris Welsing uh, did not subscribe to that viewpoint. Neely Floyd Jr. does not subscribe to that viewpoint. Dr. Kamal Kambon does not subscribe to that viewpoint. I can't think of Doc, Minister Malcolm X. There's no one I can think of. Uh, black person, non-white person who was working to counter racism, white supremacy, who has any type of notion that is similar to that. Even the people who say that they look at uh, so-called alternative news sources frequently though, or every time those so-called alternative news sources, they had to go check the New York times or some other white dominated press outlet. That said, be informed locally, nationally, globally. No universe. Do your diligence. Now, uh, I check the L.A. Times regularly, every day. Um, I also read the New York Times every day. Incidentally, the New York Times, you can get that for free at the Seattle Public Library. Like they brag about having uh, complimentary access to the New York Times. You can drive to California like we would be. Let's see. It's uh so it is 7.21 p.m. Pacific time in Seattle right now. We could leave. I think we would be in San Francisco like in time. We could probably be in San Francisco in time to see the 49ers play tomorrow. The L.A. Times is not complimentary. Anywho, I read the L.A. Times every day. Plus, I used to live in California. So the L.A. Times, they had a report titled Torrance Police Traded Racist Homophobic Texts could jeopardize hundreds of cases. Remind me of Mark Furman, even though this is Torrance, not L.A. Torrance is a sundown town. Oh. Reading is more important than watching television. I posted all this. I've never been to Torrance, and someone said, Torrance is a sundown town. I went and checked James Lowen, the late suspected race soldier. His online archive has uh, Torrance listed, I checked for the year 1970, according to the census, U.S. census, 
the town of Torrance had a population, total population of over 100,000. They had exactly 24, Kobe Bryant, exactly 24 Negras in Torrance in 1970. Sun down town. Anyway, so I go to read this report in the L.A. Times. Now, you heard that report at the very end. They didn't give you the more important details, in my opinion. They left out a whole lot. So if you read, they gave a lot more details in the L.A. Times report. One of the first things that you would come to, what were some of the racist texts that they sent? Someone else sent a picture of a candy cane, a Christmas tree ornament, a star for the top of the tree, and an enslaved person. I'm so glad they put that in quotes. They didn't say a slave. They said an enslaved person. That's why I said I'm not doing that anymore. If I'm a slave, call me a slave. Enslaved does not change anything at all. So they didn't say slave. They said enslaved, E-N. It continues, which one doesn't belong? Christmas ornament, candy cane, star for the top of the tree, and an enslaved person. Which one doesn't belong? Drum roll. You don't hang the star. Not ignorant about white supremacy racism I guess you just place the star on the tree you hang the candy canes you hang the ornaments and of course you hang an enslaved person incidentally I think according to the historical record the lynchings and such is a reconstruction era thing so technically you would not slaves or excuse me (laughs) the enslaved as he wrote frick out of here slaves Negras are expensive, so you generally would, even if they have records, even if a slave raped someone, they wouldn't necessarily kill them. Slaves are expensive, like a white man paid a lot of money for this nigger, like, whoa, we'll lash him or, you know, whatever, we'll find something to do, but man, we don't, we don't, we don't lynch Negras after they're not, after they're no longer slaves. Oh, yeah, let's lynch them by the bushel. Oh, whoa, 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 we're not done. We're not done. They give even more details. Again, reading more important than watching television. So they continue. The caption read, hanging with the homies. The picture above it showed several black men who had been lynched. Pause for Matthew Williams in Maryland, opposite side of the country. Another photo asked what someone should do if their girlfriend was having an affair with a black man. Oh, I would ring the cowbell, but I'm reading. The answer, according to the caption, was... Build up. Can you guess? Can you guess? The answer to break a taillight on his car so the police will stop him and shoot him cowbell that that moron gusty he says he says white people are not cannot be ignorant 
about white supremacy, racism. But I thought that was really, it's a lot of things, tacky journalism, act of racism, white supremacy. Like, it's not like this was a whole lot of Nigra and Coon and Sambo and all the rest. Like, they could have read some of these racist jokes, right? Like, let's, that's why I say that all the time. Let's not sanitize. Like, let's share what they said and why this should be a problem for any cases that any of these officers were involved with. Now we come back and do the program proper. Racist jokes just had that. <laughs> been talking about that for almost 13 years. Racist jokes. Oh, they are the metaphor treasure trove reveals so much. And both of those jokes, I say the pattern, that's the pattern with the racist jokes. It's lethal violence against black people and particularly black males, black male having sex with a white woman. I've been talking about that for centuries and the solution is the same. Kill him and break a taillight. So the, I thought they were ignorant. I thought they didn't know that the police kill all these Freddie Grays and stuff. I thought they, they said white people are just not ignorant. This sounds like, oh, yeah, we already know what happens. Break his taillight. Police, our homies, will stop him. And you not just will stop him and arrest him or stop. I mean, you shouldn't get killed for a broken taillight, should you? Is that a death sentence in Torrance? Broken taillight, you're supposed to die? Execution on the spot? For a tail light? Never go to Torrance again. Or I've never been there in the first place, but I'll make sure I don't visit. My goodness. Now we can do the program introduction proper. Gusty Renegade, context of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, December 11, 2021. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, counter racist suggestions to share the number seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate the number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate few things before we get to the callers uh number one we are listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive visit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com paypal button is in the top right corner hopefully within a few days you'll be able to take a gander down and see my counter racist review of king richard absolutely loved it anywho in the meantime paypal button top of the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com beneath the button you'll see the links for paypal venmo cash app uh, the cash app address cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows much obliged for all the folks who have invested uh, kept us broadcasting if we make it to uh, February it'll be 13 years 
absolutely stunning. Cannot believe one hand we've been so inefficient and not solved this problem. On the other hand, hard to think that we got through a year, much less 13 of them. Hopefully more often than not providing constructive information on what it means to be white, what white supremacy racism is, things that non-white people can and should be doing to solve this problem. Problem. Uh, you can also hit the wish list on Amazon. Uh, it is listed under Gus T. Renegade. Much obliged to all the folks who have invested and nabbed items for us over the decade or so. Hopefully, we have been worthy of your time and energy. Uh, let's see some of the audio segments that we heard, and we'll get to the callers. Uh, the report. <laughs> The report on hazing in California, I always do my diligence in trying to discourage parents from having their children uh, in white-dominated athletics, especially for young children. That is an absolute disgrace, uh, the so-called hazing. And then the total, like, what are you talking about? So your child, they got a laceration, they broke his nose. You know, we're supposed to do something around this? We're supposed to stop this? Like, are you serious? And this is so common. Sometimes it'll be some sort of sexual abuse in the hazing. Penn State, Jerry Sandusky, very, very common. In addition to all the brain damage, lots of reasons not to have your child in football. Love the clip from Will Smith, who was in King Richard, uh, from his performance in uh, Concussion. We said God did not intend for us to play football. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Following logic. Next, uh, the farmers, number one, they said they had an exact, like they had uh, quantified it. They said 1.5% of the farmers are black, used to be substantially higher. Race soldiers can decrease the numbers of black people doing all kinds of constructive things, reading, playing musical instruments, attempting to counter racism, white supremacy, trying to grow cucumbers. The audacity in that segment, they had a white representative that was on PBS. And he said that if you look systemically, there is no racism now. However, if you look on a local level for farmers, when they go to get assistance, loan help and all the rest, there is racism. He said there's racism of all sorts. It's white against black, black against white. That pbs the segment where that aired that is a major act of white supremacy i don't care if it was a non-white person white person you're speaking to anybody in the known universe and they say oh there's all kinds of racism there's black against white racism pause right there you're telling me sir you got a shirley sherrod remember her u.s department of agriculture they said oh my god you got a black racist she's denying white farmers help and all that state that she wrote down they took it out of context i did not mistreat anybody i helped a white for the white farmer even had to step up and testify yes shirley sherrod did help me keep my farm absolutely Mm -hmm. but it would have been sir show cause a white person a white farmer can go into a local department of U.S. agriculture and a black person will be in position to practice racism. Not just a black person denied them, but a black person could practice racism. Like, man, I remember what they did to old Shirley Sherrod and made her get kicked out of the Obama administration. And man, I remember what you all did to black farmers. 
this cracker has got another thing coming. You have lost your farm. I'm not helping you do nothing. In fact, I'm not helping any white people do anything. Really? What black person is allowed to function in that manner anywhere in the known universe? They can't even get the white farmers out of South Africa. That was a major one, like just stunning. Like, I mean, do your job as a journalist. Ask some questions uh, to just let someone to allow someone to say something like that and to have it not challenged at all after what happened to Shirley Sherrod. Anywho. Uh, and then the same fellow to come back and say, hey, there's no racism. Nobody wants to hear about you being a victim. I thought that was so stunning. Like, wow. So if it was a white person who said he was a victim of Negro racism, no count Shirley Sherrod type, right? We don't want to hear about you being a white victim, white guy. Get on out of here with that. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, metaphor. Uh, I was so <laughs> that was almost as bad as the uh, or the allegation that there was black racism. Uh, to come back with the same time the same thing as a journalist you don't have any questions for that really is 2022 and that's your response pull yourself up by your bootstraps even though i guess they did talk to a black person afterwards who said oh yeah i made my own bootstraps and all that but i mean that's forget that metaphor entirely that is we are in a system of white supremacy where you get boots and you have clan carolyn bryant dunham who comes and says oh he raped me and they crash straight and kill you and steal your boots. That's what we're talking about. Take your farm for a penny. System of white supremacy racism. This is, I mean, it's absurd to have someone talk this way and it not be challenged. And in all of that talking, it reminded me of Earl Butts. He was a former uh, white secretary of agriculture, 1970s, under uh, Richard Nixon's administration. Earl Butts, he had to step down. Why? He was on a plane. Racist jokes. They were, uh, I guess you still had like the uh, Black Panther Party and other black people attempting to counter racism at, at during the 1970s. Earl Butts is on a plane. And he says, I'm not worried about these niggers out here in the streets. Yammering and hollering. I'm not worried about them. He says, I know you know what they want. And he's talking to a journalist, I believe, for the Rolling Stones. He says, well, no, no, I don't know what they want. He says, you know what they want. Stop stop being coy. You know what they want. He says, no, I don't, I don't know what they want. What do they want? U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Earl Butts, white man, he says, they want, you. Can, if you have, chew, I was going to say cover years, but no, 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 you should hear this because this is U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, white man. This is what he said. The Negro wants loose shoes, tight pussy, and a warm place to take a shit. Direct quote that he says to a journalist who published it and then he had to resign. But I thought of any time I hear U.S. Department of Agriculture, I think Earl Butts. Boop. And they wonder why black farmers have had such a tough time. Next. I have to pause. So we heard the segment on pollution uh, and how black people are more likely to bear the brunt of that. That's no surprise. We talked about that in uh, Harriet A. Washington's book, A Terrible Thing to Waste. Uh, and we just talked about the impact of pollution in Countdown on the book club, which was such a constructive book. It was such a pleasant surprise. Again, I'm not really sure what I was expecting in that book, but it was not what was delivered in a very surprising, pleasantly surprising way like 
constructive suggestions. Really enjoyed it. It's super short, super constructive. And to that end, we're starting a new book this Thursday, Lucky by Alice Seabold. I'm so thankful we had so many cows volunteers who uh, stepped up or who volunteered their time and energy. I said this book, uh, which I thought had been not released or whatever, I was confused. This book, Lucky, has been published for two decades. I didn't know it had been around that long. Still learning. So this book is about a white woman who allegedly was raped. She sees a black male later smiling and she says, oh, yeah, he did it. And they convict him. He served 16 years. That's what the book is about. They do the DNA testing and turns out, no, he did not rape her. Served 16 years unjustly and all the rest of it. Uh, So they now are supposed to be re-releasing the book and they are supposed to make a movie about all of this. And we're going to be reading the book starting this Thursday. I'm so looking forward to it. We had so many volunteers. Uh, I talked about the book this past Monday when our white guest reneged. And I think within 24 hours, someone said, oh, wait a minute. I got that from literally they said I got that book from a volume of cassettes. Remember those? It's almost like having an eight track. I thought he said he had them, uh, I guess, copied or transferred on cassette wherever they were stored at. Uh, I was able to get the entire uh, audio book of Lucky Alice Seabold. So we are ready Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I am excited Uh, I'm so looking forward to try to learn as much as I can about Mr. Uh, Anthony Broadwater, who this book is about. No count raping black male and particularly because the book is written. He did it. He is guilty that no count Anthony raping Broadwater only to find out that no, not true, did not. And even to wonder, was this white woman raped at all? 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. And why is this book called Lucky? That stood out to me immediately. We have a book about a black male who's been wrongfully convicted of raping a white woman. Why is it called Lucky? Who is Lucky? What do you even mean, Lucky? 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Reading is more important than watching television. Let's see. That was in the L.A. Times, too. That's how I found out about that book. They had a big report in her lame apology, Alice Siebold, about, oh, man, I I guess I convicted that wrong nigra. And I messed up my movie deal, too. (laughs) Let's see. Next. They had the segment about health being worst. I thought that was significant. The NIH National Institute of Health white male uh, director stepping down. I thought it was important because he mentioned obesity. They said, man, you know, people are not living as long in the U.S., lower life expectancy rates. And he mentioned COVID-19. He mentioned obesity. All you can eat, fat boys. He mentioned obesity. And then the conversation pivoted away from all of that to, you know, we got to make sure that people are being vaccinated and uh, medications and pharmaceutical company and all these other things. It's like, wait a minute. You said obesity uh, in talking about people not living as long. Like, 
why not spend more time on food? I mean, hey, he mentioned racial disparities in there, but I mean, hey, someone had said that as well, even with COVID-19. Why isn't that being discussed more as opposed to coming to, to fuss at us about not getting the vaccine or talking about now we got pills and all these other things that you can sell us through the white pharmaceutical giants? Why don't we just get back to basics? Maybe everybody would be healthier, less susceptible if we had less obesity, less sugar consumption, less garbage foods, more people eating plant-based diet, even if they weren't exclusively plant-based, but just having more access to fresh, organic fruits and vegetables. If obesity is such a problem and even making people more susceptible to COVID-19, wouldn't that make sense? And focusing more attention on that, even if you're still going to talk about all the other things. If he said obesity immediately, why are people living as long? COVID-19 obesity. Why isn't that included? They just had that report about, hey, food should be a part of the discussion about making ourselves more resilient to fight off this COVID-19 if it's going to be here for a while. Get out of the McDonald's line. Why isn't that included as a part of the approach to dealing with health? Especially with the sad, what they call standard American diet. Major revamps, changes to what we eat. That doesn't get brought up at all. Keep having tubby people. Uh, let's see. They had the segment on Maryland where they're supposed to have all this reconciliation. Uh, I thought it was important uh, they called the reconciliation uh, efforts powerful to, I guess, have people sit together and talk about how Matthew Williams and other black people were lynched black males. It seemed uh, it's interesting when the word powerful can be used or power. Other derivatives can be used freely without hesitation. They didn't say privilege there. It was powerful for us to sit down and talk about this under the rubric of reconciliation. They don't say it's powerful for white people to be able to kill black people with impunity man reading more important than watching television i'm so uh excited to get that book silent shore written by a black male uh white guests only but it sounds really constructive uh he said specifically that that is a lie that is a myth that this wasn't talked about and he said that's not true at all he said amongst white people this was talked about this was not some oh man we don't know who lynched old Matthew Williams. Who could have done such a thing? No, it was widely talked about. We know who did it, bragged about it. Same standard procedure. It's no white people are not, cannot be ignorant about racism, white supremacy. If anything, they brag about racism, joke about killing Matthew Williams. I was there. We got postcards and all of it. Silence. Sure. Let me see if I can get the name really quick uh see i'll work on that over the so-called weekend uh to see if we can get him on the program as soon as possible i'll give myself one more moment i just pulled the tab up to find more information about the book Ah, i'll track it down in a moment and then i'll get but the name of the book uh is silent shore Silent Shore. That's the name of the text. Uh, it's written by a black male. I do like to plug black books uh, when I can. So, give, oh, there it is. Charles L. Chavis Jr. Charles L. Chavis Jr. 
that's his name. He spoke in the segment, uh, but he uh, wrote the book Silent Shore. And then the full title Silent Shore, the lynching of Matthew Williams and the politics of racism in the free state. That is rare to have a book with racism and or white supremacy in the title kind of rare i had uh, i posted that before i went through my library uh, and you know not that i have the most books in the world but to have lots of books that are about racism it's very, they'll say race they'll find lots of other little niggardly ways of avoiding the topic very rare to have a book that has racism and or white supremacy in the title anywho uh We'll see if we can read this and or maybe we can talk to uh, Professor Charles L. Chavis Jr. about this really important book and especially to have someone who's talking about this above the Mason Dixon same behaviors, white terrorism. And then and then we got the photo, too. He has the picture right on the front of the book. I'm glad I saw that white children. It's got a whole mob of whites. These do not look like white, toothless uh, vagabonds and drunkards these are whites who are out in their sunday best they got their tie their bow tie on some of them and they got their hats and everything they brought their children out like we're gonna get that no count uh matthew williams show you what it means to be a white man or woman reading more important than watching television let's see uh when they talked about the segment on uh, Emmett Till. Uh, I believe they were talking with some of his relatives. There was just audio, not video, but I think they were talking to some of uh, Mr. Uh, I'll say Mr. Emmett Till's relatives and VGQ victims guaranteed qualified. And certainly anybody that's gone through trauma, it might be therapeutic, I guess, uh, just as best you can in trying to process uh and and deal with each day and all the trauma of everything but i don't think it was necessary i don't think it is required that anybody die in order to so-called change things i don't think emmett till's death was required to change things i just don't believe that i think that is an aspect of racism white supremacy that there has to be some sort of sacrifice and blood sacrifice and so i think that is really macabre uh, and total, just the culture of white supremacy, racism, and it's not even true. The problem has not been solved. They have lots of metrics where things are just as bad, if not worse, than they were at the time that Emmett Till was killed. If you want to look economically, uh, academically, uh, white people living next to black people, like by lots of metrics, things have not improved at all. So I don't know if that's like rhetoric uh, or if they have different metrics that they've seen that suggest that maybe things are better, but that is not how I view things at all, nor do I think any black person should feel like, oh, yeah, you know, Sandra Bland had to die for things to be better. Like, we should try to solve this problem without anyone else having to die. Black people are dying all the time, and it does not end up meaning absolutely anything. Just another black person gone. And then nobody even prosecuted in this case to have no count lying Carolyn Bryant Dunham white woman nobody prosecuted in the or excuse me no one convicted for the killing lynching castration of a 14 year old black child same Chicago connections Jussie Smollett bam felony conviction 14 year old castrated and where you can have the white killers publicly confessed 
confess and detail how they lynched this 14 year old child and no one is convicted even the white woman who can then come back later and talk about it and oh no I went out on the uh, vehicle ride to help identify him and oh well I did make up some of my story and you know I have to recant that and that's not exactly what I said and she can light out her uh, old age she doesn't have to do any sort of Bill Cosby where I gotta be wheeled into the courtroom my geriatric self and face these allegations about things that happened all these years nah not for I'm chilling join my Christmas holiday <laughs> racist woman say that all the time they talk about patriarchy man you would not have a system of white supremacy racism without white women carolyn bryant dunham immunity above prosecution completely um let's see anything else i'll leave it there uh we had lots of metaphors uh mentioned during this section, I guess the one that I'll pick out specifically that bothered me, uh, if I want to say it that way, um, they said they were talking about the vaccines uh, and they were talking about the discrepancy uh, in terms of not or they they weren't saying racism, white supremacy were identifying white people, but they were saying rich countries, rich nations having uh, vaccines and going through, you know, one, two jabs and then booster jabs and, you know, bunches of booster rounds while uh, poorer countries, i.e. non-white people struggling to get one round of vaccinations. The metaphor that was used was that white people, richer countries, it's like having a second life jacket while others non-white people are drowning around you I reject that metaphor uh, because I do not think that the COVID-19 vaccine is comparable to a life jacket if you are drowning in water Uh, just things that are being compared I talk about that all the time with those metaphors Uh, for one most of the people who get COVID-19 do not die this is not drowning. This is not, you know, some of the other diseases or what have you that are fatal. Unless I've been misinformed, I am not a medical professional. But it seems there are lots of individuals who have admitted that they contracted COVID or at least have said they contracted COVID at some point, tested positive. They're still here. Yes, they've said there are people who have died from complications, large numbers. That's tragic, should be avoided. But said that the whole time most of the people who get COVID-19 it's not fatal unless they had some underlying conditions obesity other elements ailments related to that Uh, but also the vaccine is not a life jacket they said consistently the vaccine is just going to prevent you from getting serious complications but you absolutely can still contract you can still transmit it's not a life jacket at all Uh, I say that all the time pay attention to the things that are being contrasted uh, in those metaphors a lot of times that can have a big influence on our thinking just because we're not really paying attention Uh, we're not closely scrutinizing uh, the analogies that are being incorporated vaccines are not life jackets not saying anything about getting vaccinated not getting vaccinated I just don't think of them as a life jacket let's see to that uh, same subject matter no metaphors if we could be precise 
direct with our commentary that would be super appreciated race soldiers are master deceivers and frequently they will use analogies comparisons to deceive us and to practice white supremacy racism uh, to the best that we can uh, let's use logic be precise with words I know sometimes we're still learning so we don't have evidence to present our views and we will substitute a metaphor of some sort uh, if we could try to be as exact as we can with our word choice that would be super appreciated I will give reminders uh, about the analogies and such uh, number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts observations that would be great uh, just to make sure that everybody gets at least one chance to speak uh, if you have additional thoughts uh, to share uh, after everyone has given their one chance then you can rejoin and give your additional thoughts, questions, whatever you need to share. Uh, if you know you're in a noisy environment, uh, if you could use your mute button, that would be great uh, just so that we don't have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background noise. Uh, if you could kind of get to maybe a, a quieter area, share your thoughts, uh, and then you can mute. Uh, if you have additional comments to share, great. Uh, just use your mute button and you can rejoin and share as you have commentary uh, let's see folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, line should be open feel free to share can I be heard uh, Moen Dallas yes sir um, yes sir I'll be very brief thank you guys greetings um Listeners and callers, uh, thank you for the program. Uh, my um, my comment is just about the uh, Emmett Hill case uh, being closed. It, uh, I, I'm I'm dissatisfied, uh, obviously, uh, but not surprised. Um, and uh, with the case being closed, uh, uh, in the fashion it was, we have uh, uh, the individual. There's not much you can do, but admit they did it, and they didn't do that. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 and there, there was no reason um, for Emmett Till to die uh, for uh, for Car for Carol uh, Brian Dunham uh, lie, uh, uh, and and everyone who died after Emmett Till that did uh, uh, fuel or or inspired um, uh, people, uh, victims of racism to, to end up and things of the sort. Um, but we lost Maker Evers, Dr. King, uh, Reverend Malcolm X, uh, countless of, uh, uh, and she, like, she, she is responsible. Like, and that is just, Discussed in, in uh, to me, um, he literally did that, and it, it, it's shameful um, and it's very upsetting. Uh, that's all I have. I mean, my line. 
Shameful indeed. Many components of white supremacy racism are, uh, to put it mildly, shameful. Uh, and that for sure is one. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm in total agreement. I don't think Medgar Evers, Dr. Long list of black people, Patrice Lumumba, all over the world, Steve Biko, they did not need to die. The four little girls who died in Birmingham, none of them needed to die to solve this problem. And again, the problem hasn't even been solved. Victims guaranteed qualified. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Can I, can I be heard? Uh, did I hear, I heard retired firefighter. Did I hear a female caller as well? Yes, please, Mom. I can go after retired firefighters. Hmm. Uh, all right. We would normally go females first, but if she's if she's relenting, uh, retired firefighter, much obliged, sir. Uh, the the lady can go if uh, it's preferable. She can go unless she just wants me to uh, talk first. It's, it's okay. I can go. Thank you. Go ahead. Um, I had uh, I think just two comments. The first one. I thought it was interesting. I forgot the person's case, but it seemed to be a white female that was a police officer that shot a black male. I thought that was really interesting um, that you play that segment right before playing the segment about Jesse Smollett's case, because in the first case with that white female, the, um, the reporters, they kept saying, oh, even though people are really emotional about this, that they may not get the um, trial or expectations that they want because, you know, the jury has to go by, like the judge and jury have to go by what's legal or not legal, not what's moral and not moral. And then that segment, um, the one that you played right after is about the Justice Smollett case. And, it, and in that segment, they keep saying, oh, well, normally... Um, a person would get, you know, one year probation. But because, like, they, they put inside so many other factors that don't have to do with the legality of the case as to why he may get a harsher sentencing. So I thought it was really interesting that when it comes to white people, we have to focus on the laws and no emotions or morality. But then when it comes to black people, somehow um, it's about what we feel and what is right and what what we consider to be egregious or not. I think they said that it's especially egregious, which I think that's very, very interesting. And then the other thing I wanted to say about the um, Torrance um, police officers, I'm not surprised at all. I unfortunately went to uh, high school in Torrance. I was bused there. It's a, uh, there is a lot of racist white people in Torrance, the whole police um Officers there, there's a lot of cases and instances of them targeting um, black people, which is really interesting because when I lived, or I didn't live in Torrance, but when I went to high school in Torrance, I met a lot of um, my classmates' parents who were very um, avid drug users, and they were all white. And yet the people who get um, pulled over the most or 
have um, cases against them in Torrance are Black people, even though it's a majority white area. And it's a, a very drug-ridden um, city, even though it's pretty affluent. There's a lot of, just a lot of drugs that, that, that are passed on in that area. So I thought that was really interesting. And I'm just not surprised because that, that whole school system was very, very racist. So that's all I have to say. Thank you. Mm. Amazing. She went to the school system in Torrance. That's uh and was busted, man. Yikes. Danger. Like that seems like it could be the type of environment where you'd have some white people same type of white people who are out rowdy and rioting about having to wear a mask in school. They would be out rowdy and riot like busing Negros to our beloved Torrance? Like, what is going on here? Like, uh, I'm yeah, not... Yeah, I had many experiences in there just walking down the street and having people scream the N-word at me through their cars when I was, a, like, a child. Wow. Did your parents, like, talk to you about all of this and, you know... Eat- tell you where you're go- like you're going to an area that's a sundown town or maybe they didn't call it that but did your parents you know talk to you about racism and what was that ha- while this was happening no not at all they just told me it was a good opportunity because it was going to be a better school system wow Whew. man try to do the best that we can Hopefully, we can all do as parents, can all say, hey, maybe our parents, maybe we were lucky and we had parents who did talk to us about racism, but it seems to be pretty common that many black parents out of fear or whatever, they don't know what to say, they just don't have this information, don't talk to their children about white supremacy, racism, uh, and it's always to our detriment. My parents didn't either, always to our detriment. Uh, The best we can do is say, hey, one of the things we have to make sure that we talk about in great detail before conception, when, how we're going to talk to our children about white supremacy, racism. What sort of books are we going to have? What are we going to do? Maybe we go sit out to the park and talk to them like experience, life experience. Do you want to pull from? Maybe we can get some other family members to talk to them like run down all of it and how does this conversation evolve as the child grows but that is so important imagine that sending your child to a sundown town and then no discussion of racism white supremacy at all like and that's so common for exactly what they said because it's hey better opportunities who doesn't want better opportunities for their child better school you can do you know a comp maybe you can go to a better college or whatever it is like man uh, much of black, and that was such a great observation about the morals. I say that sequencing with the uh, news segments, it is never just random slopping things together. But even I hadn't noticed that um, about how when they were talking, Kim Potter is uh, the white woman, Minnesota, uh, who's on trial for uh, killing Dante Wright, said she was going for her taser. Uh, but they said, yeah, you know, they might not get the verdict that they want. We just got to go by the letter of the law, as they say, metaphor. We can't be about morals and all that. Then when they switched to Justin Smollett, uh, Jesse Smollett, excuse me, where there is no murder, no loss of life uh, or even destruction of property. It's, hey, we know he doesn't have a criminal record. 
probation is likely here. But no, 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 no. we got to make an example. This is a, they said ethical. That was a, they said this is such, so ethically egregious what he did to us. Just lied to us repeatedly. Got to make an example. I, I, I thought of Michael Vick when they said that. Uh, where Michael Vick, he had no criminal record, and they had just changed this law in Virginia uh, where they were going to prosecute him. First time offender, probation, you know, something good. We got to make an example out of this Negro. Way above what the normal sentence would be. Egregious. Remind us of R. Kelly. Uh, also in Chicago, it's all the Chicago, Emmett Till and Jesse Smollett, Chicago, Pamela Evans Harris. It's on my mind today. Pamela Evans Harris, Chicago, too. Uh, other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up, star six one. Uh, you have commentary. The number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Greetings. Retired firefighter. Okay, yes. everyone. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, the uh, the incident of uh, Emmett Till uh, always stays recent uh, with me because of the frequency uh, I talk to that particular incident uh, with young black males through the DCS program. Um, And uh, the white female uh, who identified Emmett Till, in my opinion, uh, she's still alive. Uh, I think she's being directly or indirectly being protected uh if any by if by anything the institution that's called the mainstream media uh they can be quite aggressive with some other means of tracking a person down and and uh sticking a, a microphone in their face or someone uh who is connected with that person uh and uh uh, basically aggravate, at the minimum, aggravate the person. I haven't seen any of that yet. I haven't seen any of that with her at all, let alone talking about the uh, the non-mainstream <clears throat> uh, people such as YouTube and whatever. Uh, maybe she stays in the house 24-7. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I don't see uh, any aggressive uh, approach. Uh, to this uh, uh, person who participated in his in his brutal murder, uh, the uh, incident I didn't, I didn't get a chance. I don't think I I spoke about it. Uh, I didn't get a chance to uh, speak about the uh, the incident that took place in Michigan uh, from the standpoint of uh, the moment I heard about it. Uh, I uh, did my research and found out that somewhere between 97% to 98% of the people that stay in that area are white people with the average, the average income is in a $90,000 a year 
bracket. And uh, right then, that gave me a pretty good idea of who was the killer and who was the victims, uh, you know, from that standpoint. And so, therefore, uh, with that research in mind, I have to figure, uh, and it's a percentage of black people in it, but it's, an, it's what I would identify as being an acceptable uh, percentage of non-white black people in it, specifically from what I've heard earlier, uh, the black parent attempting to put their child in a quote-unquote better educational in, uh, uh, environment, I guess you want to call it that that sort of thing that has the income to do so they're going to have, they will have a small percentage. It's like a modern version of, of the, uh, the old name that's called sundown towns. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, DCS program day, primarily <clears throat> what, uh, we did today was hand out some awards, gave some recognition, to uh, some individual uh, young fellows, uh, and I was glad to see that some of the awards went to the older, the older uh, young people, uh, <clears throat> and I think I was able to reach a few of them uh, when I would identify the history that I would talk about or show them, and identify it with them and made it relevant to more today's time and dates and where they also play a part in making better decisions uh, in their own personal lives and, and also in relationship with others that they associate with, such as friends, family members, that sort of thing, and even strangers when they become encountered with them. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you for listening. Much obliged to uh, retired firefighter for yielding to Z's mom. Uh, I got confused. We heard him briefly. So my brain computer was saying, oh, he already shared. So I was moving forward. I was like, oh, wait a minute. He did not share. It's just uh, yielding. Much obliged. Um, grand work with uh, the DCS program uh, and sharing with the Young folks uh, consistently trying to get constructive information uh, through to them uh, as best you can. Uh, let's see with. Yeah, the whole Emmett Till situation is. Uh, I'm sure for a lot of folks, that's kind of one that they talk about, either uh, example that they've shared with other people and trying to illustrate white supremacy, racism or uh, whatever it you know ends up having to be. Uh, and <laughs> retired. I'm I'm only pointing this out because this is two times. I guess I have to put Sundown Towns maybe in my top ten. And Sundown Town is a metaphor. Um, maybe we should think. People have some time and energy. You can think of a better term. What should these areas be called? Because Sundown Town is not specific to the white supremacist component of all of this. Um, 
Like if somebody didn't know anything about racism, white supremacy, and they just said, oh, sundown town. Like, what does that mean? Like, you just go there and see a nice sunset. Like, it does not convey in any way like, oh, black people could be killed for being in this area at all. You could die for being there in the middle of the daytime, much less sundown town. So that's one. Two, you did share your thoughts on the Michigan shooting last week. Uh, Ethan Crumbly, white 15-year-old who's charged with terrorism, going to be tried as an adult and they are charging his parents as accomplices as well um, but retired firefighter did share his thoughts because when he talked about uh, him going to look up to see the affluence of this area and like oh I bet they don't have a whole lot of black people there uh, I looked in sundown towns and Oak County Michigan is in sundown towns and I read the passage uh, from sundown towns on the book uh, on the program uh, last week and talking about exactly what he said they don't have a whole lot of black people in Oak County Michigan not definitely even specifically the part where this shooting took place uh, at Oxford High School I don't think there are very many black people there like that's not one of the few locations where they allowed black people to reside where the shooting happened getting more forgetful as I get older <laughs> victims of racism all of us none of us has a perfect memory uh let's well, see one 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 brief thing that uh at least had me smiling a little bit about an hour ago uh as probably people know the heisman trophy uh was uh <clears throat> acknowledged about an hour ago and uh the winner was a black male and uh he had his mother and father at the event and I, I i thought that was uh at least that part was constructive uh i guess the next thing is to stay tuned to uh uh the female that uh he would uh, have at one of these type of occasions maybe a couple of years from now when he uh uh, is uh, up for the NFL draft that it would be a, hopefully it'll be a black female, but uh, you never can tell nowadays. Thank you. I was thinking next up is name and image likeness. Like, uh, give me my check. Like, my goodness. Like, if I get a Heisman, like, ooh, we like endorsements and all that. We probably about to go to our bowl game too. Like, woo. Name and image likeness show what is the Cuba Gooding Jr. best actor in the universe. He said, show me the money. Like, yeah, like uh, I, I don't know if this is the first season where Heisman Trophy winners can actually cash in. But oh, my Lord, like dollar signs, dollar signs, dollar signs. Yes. Oh, and then, yes, great football season. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, everybody else. Give me my check. <laughs> That's all that would. Give me my check. Lots of checks. Yes. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks who dialed in, number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, other folks, if you uh, if we missed you totally thus far, if you have a hand up, proceed. Hello, may I be heard? Greetings, Irie. Yes, ma'am. 
Cool tip, everyone. Um, thanks for letting me call in and speak. Um, I want to thank the listener that gave me the information on Hal Dahl. So um, I try to take some proactive steps and get some um, supplements that would um, protect uh, my son's cardiovascular system, CoQ10. Um, I I even, uh, he begrudgingly um, did it, but I showed him some breathing exercises that I've been doing um, in order to be alert and also to uh, control my heart rate. And I, when I explained to him because of the side effects that are implicated that he's going to have to be conscious of his heart rate more now more than ever before, especially considering that he um, likes to lift weights and um, also that he has to he has to get uh, away from eating animal protein. He he's not convinced that he can live way without it still. I told him about the, the vegan, but, you know, he's a teenager, so he's a little stubborn on it. But um, he did listen to me about the breathing exercises. And um, I, you know, I just got upset because, you know, things things are so rough financially for everyone that everybody considered victims of racism and the, so these supplements, they just, I I usually spent about 120-something within, like, six minutes. And, you know, did I have it? I guess you could say I had it, but did it, you know, it came from my savings. And, I mean, I'm not saying it in a complaint way, but, um, I mean, I don't need nothing to go wrong. You know what I'm saying? So it's like... <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, white people. Speaking of that, um, I was asked to help a non-white victim with a a business plan for an educational situation. And um, I met her somewhere and I didn't realize that the racist suspect that she um, wanted to incorporate in this program, I didn't realize that he would be where we were meeting. And I didn't realize once I saw this white person that he was the white person so he came in and he was very casual and just was sitting around and they were talking about something while I was reading through her business summary she thinks it's a business plan but it's a summary and she's like oh he helped me with it and I said oh okay and then they started talking about how things got so bad and you know people not having food and da 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 and he says I don't know how things got this way and I I, I I'm sorry. I, I looked up immediately. I said, you don't? And he's like, oh, no. I, you know, I'm going to try to wrap this part of it up. He's like, yeah, um, no, I mean, you know, well, I will say one thing about uh, when the leaders didn't do what the people wanted in Europe, you know, the Europeans, you know, got rid of them. They, they took their heads off. I said, oh, so should we all resort to European tactics? And he was like, oh, no, I'm not saying that. I said, because if you were, you're the one most qualified to do that. And then, you know, long story short, you know, it was infuriating. I I had to go. And she was like, I don't want you to go. I want you all to work together. I can't do it. 
I can't do it. She's confused. I've tried to give her some information to make her less confused, and it doesn't look like she's as serious about being informed with people's children as she is. I don't know what these two have, <laughs> have what their plans are, but it's obvious she needs him and she doesn't want to, She's not willing to consider him a racist suspect, even though I I literally exposed him. Um, but yeah, um, the this installment of racism, white supremacy that we're experiencing in America, I've been looking at these videos. They're so desperate <laughs> to continue to subjugate and abuse and just have people like. Just, just, just the spontaneity of the robberies they commit. There was a, a non-white Marine Corps veteran, combat veteran, that was driving to see his children in another state. He had some cash on him. They took the cash. Uh, civil forfeiture. Um, uh, older black male from from my city, New Orleans, went to another state to buy a vehicle for his business for he and his son. Um, went back, you know, to the airport to return back to New Orleans with the cash and civil forfeiture. The DEA, no, no, you're selling drugs. You know what? Other than the racist, you know, being racist and not wanting us to have anything, you know, it's not enough to talk about all this debt that they've allowed these white supremacists to put this country in this corporation, you know, um, and so now the robber barons or the, or the warlords are going around literally taking people's money from them if they have over a certain amount. So what I wanted to end with, please, if things are going to get worse economically, I don't know how to tell people to buffer for that or care for that because I'm a victim and like I said buying $120 worth of vitamins hurt me today but if you're traveling and um, you have cash or you need to do something in a large amount just go to the bank get a cashier's check deposit it in that bank even if you have to open the account for that day and get a cashier's check so these people don't rob you and the other thing I want to say before I leave the line please Let's stay on cold. Let's not squabble with black folks. That's what I didn't do. I walked away from this friend of mine. But I also want to say be be very leery and and aware of these well-meaning white people. That's none of them. That's my VGQ and um, peace this evening. Thank you. Leave my line. Much obliged, Irie. Uh, I believe my memory is not the best either, retired firefighter. Um, I think that might have been Vegan RD who shared the information uh, about uh, Haldol. Uh, she emailed me after hearing the archives. Uh, if I didn't remember that accurately, my apologies. I'm a victim, but I think it might have been her. Right on. Um, we'll see if we can do some programs. <laughs> sobriety would be best that was actually mentioned in countdown specifically cannabis she mentioned all of them smoking cigarettes 
uh, alcohol and cannabis consumption, uh, that all of that not healthy. And particularly if you're looking to conceive male or female, who knows what type of uh, health implications. That's what she said in the book. Uh, but yeah, for folks who've heard Irie talking about uh, her offspring and difficulties that he's having using cannabis, lots of reasons sobriety would be best, particularly talking with children. Uh, incidentally, in terms of uh, giving up beat for your child, if he's lifting weights and saying, you know, hey, I'm trying to get my muscle on and, you know, build bulk and can't be messing around eating carrots and everything and bulking up. That is not true. And Dr. Ruby Lathan, she mentioned the documentary Game Changers. Uh, it is all about athletes and all kind of like NFL professional uh, football players, um, power lifters, bodybuilt folks who weigh like over 300. Like, I don't know how large your son is, but they have people who like are over 300 pounds who are lifting like massive amounts of like bodybuilder, professional bodybuilder uh, amounts of weight and all of them plant-based uh, performing at the highest level. They have uh, UFC fighters uh, on there who, you know, are going out and doing, I mean, could be called Mortal Kombat. You can kill somebody uh, who are going out and doing that at the highest levels plant-based and saying that they are performing better now that they're plant-based. Uh, even Chris Paul, if he watches NBA bad, you all are right there. He played in New Orleans, even though he's in Phoenix now, but uh, has extended his career, has been plant-based for some years now, and has been pretty public about it. So you absolutely can lift weights. I don't know if he's just doing it to get stronger or if he's doing it to gain mass and bulk up. He wants to be bigger. All of the above can be done. Plant-based diet, lots, lots of examples and it would be healthier uh, in terms of heart health and everything that they talked about all that cholesterol and everything else you want to have really healthy eating habits uh, especially if you're talking you got to eat a lot of calories like ooh, you want to be eating nutrient dense healthy foods not you know i got to get in 5,000 calories of you know junk anywho uh let's see and be absolutely on vgq or Minimizing conflict with other victims of racism like that is I emphasize that all the time in terms of non-white people who any of us who say we are less confused about white supremacy racism. It should be demonstrated when in contact with other victims of racism like not arguing squabbling if they don't agree with white supremacy racism. They don't even think white supremacy exists. Fine. That's not something to gripe and argue about minimize conflict if they ever change their mind on that subject matter they will know how to contact you lines of communication open number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate uh, do not wait until the last moment to share. If you have commentary, go ahead and get your hand up. Uh, questions, commentary, counter racist suggestions. Uh, also wanted to make sure that I got in. I've talked about like it has just been. I've been saying the conclusion of programs like be mindful. She was talking about uh, the civil forfeitures that were happening. Different people going to do business transactions, business trips and 
money taken from them. They have lots of reports about those civil uh, forfeitures. Uh, just be, I guess, be super mindful if you have to travel uh, with any amount of uh, cash, especially probably be added security. I don't know if you're having to fly or whatever else, but be very mindful uh, if you're out and about and you have cash. Uh, as she said, try to avoid that if you can. Go to the bank, cashier's check, whatever you know you need to do. Um, I've been saying people have just been, you know, people are stressed, whether it's uh, financial hardships, mad about the masks, mad about the vaccine, whatever it is. Uh, lots of people, rowdy, angry. It's been so much of that over all over the world, really. Um, here in Seattle as well. I've been saying people in Seattle, it's been so rowdy. They've had all these shootings and everything else uh, over the past year. I was at the library yesterday. I'm trying to get work done by myself, minding my own business. They have um, mask mandates at the library. Not whole lots of people and everything have to have a mask on while you're there. So I'm, you know, looking on my computer, trying to find something. Got my mask on, got my little desk area seated to myself. I'm chilling. All of a sudden, all of this like explosion of ruckus out of nowhere white woman not a white man white woman and i mean she is just profanities are a rolling you know filth flooring filth and filth and filth and man i bust you upside your eardrums and and so she goes over and she has a dog with her too which is killing me so she goes over to the table and she doesn't have a mask on and they're like, ma'am, you have to have a mask on. Everybody who comes to the library, you have to have a mask on. She said, look here. Feel far and filth and telling you about putting a mask on and making me grab you by your head. And I'm thinking the whole time, like, man, if that had been me, like, woo, they would have called 911 so fast. Like, unruly nigra about to rape someone. Like, get here immediately. And he's not wearing a mask. So she's still on her tirade the whole time. No mask on and the staff is like handling her with kid gloves like we're not gonna escalate and all the rest of it so the uh, unmasked white terrorist she sits down and she says I have another person talking to me about putting on a mask can't believe this and she says I am a smoker and I'm asthmatic half people keep telling me put mask on I'm gonna hyperventilate now I had joked like to myself way back last year at the beginning of all this like man people that smoke cigarettes like it should be optional if they you know want to wear a mask or not because I mean hey I'm already working on lung cancer like what's a teaspoon of respiratory infection like no big deal that was last year that was not in the immediacy so her raging and cursing and not wearing a mask white defiance all the rest of it like totally The whole library is in disarray. Thankfully, we have 20 other libraries. I mean, it would be pretty easy to just get up and dip and, you know, pick a safer branch. Uh, But just, man, again, if that had been myself, I would not have been surprised if they had called enforcement officers and the whole nine. Um, Just very different world uh, within the system of racism, white supremacy. Maybe Maybe I could have done the exact same thing and they would have done the same thing. Maybe. I don't think Emmett Lewis Till was 14. I have lots of reasons to think otherwise. 
Anywho, stay safe. Uh, I do not encourage uh, verbal confrontations with strangers in public. Lots of unruly and uh, violent behavior uh, amongst whites. Very widespread. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, Other folks, comments, observations to share. Can I be heard? Uh, Mo in Dallas. Yes, sir. Um, Yes. uh, um, In response to, uh, I I believe, uh, the lady lady that spoke last uh, um, and... um, doing our best to, uh, you know, avoid conflict with other victims. Um, I want to, I want to thank this program because this program, although, uh, it, it, it it is, uh, not although, but this program is very constructive when it comes to communicating clearly. Um, and I appreciate the environment because I do exercise, um, uh, my communication skills in my personal life. Um, just, and I try to avoid metaphors and I try to avoid, um, uh, uh, confrontational language, uh, because I, I would like to resolve, uh, problems and I do uh, appreciate this program for that. Um, it, it, it is like, it, it is, it's a great way to execute and re-listen and also experience um, other other victims executing um, clear communication. Um, I also wanted to add. Uh, I, I spoke briefly the first time because I was just upset at, at, at the Emmett Till situation. Um, but uh, I, I, I negated the mention. Uh, I believe I don't know if this is accurate or not. I am a victim. Governor Phil Phil Bryant of Mississippi is Carol Bryant Dunham's nephew. I believe I'm not certain if that's true or not, but I think that's her nephew. Um, and I'm saying that because it makes sense. So why that, uh, why, why, why she wouldn't be punished or anybody would be punished in that situation. Um, which are, um, you, you recommended, uh, uh, sundown towns is a is a metaphor. Uh, there's a, there's a city in, in my region in Texas is called a uh, white settlement, Texas, I believe. I was, I've also heard of a city called white Georgia. Uh, I motioned that we just call these places white towns. That was my initial thought. But then uh, using logic, all of these towns are white towns because we don't own any of them. Um, so I have high alert areas and higher alert areas. Uh, those are my recommendations. And as for, uh, officer, uh, uh, the article or segment about Kim Potter, uh, using her, um, taser or, or yelling taser and using her weapon. Um, these are some things I think I know about tasers. Uh, the reason why you get a warning usually before an officer uses a taser because it has to be turned on and charged. Um, 
uh, and I believe there's a there's a, like a process to it. You cannot just pull a taser out and fire it. From what I understand about tasers, um, so uh, and, and I, um, from what I understand, officers usually carry their tasers on their weak side. They have a strong side and a weak side for, um, and it's it's usually um, you know at the officer's preference. Uh, so I I just I don't. I don't believe I, no one. I don't believe her. I'll say it that way uh, about her claims. Um, and in the article um, or, or the segment that you played, it, it stated that the young man was going to kill her partner. Like it said that in the statement. Um, they don't know what Deontay Wright was going to do, but yet, like just like with Emmett Till. You know, he was going to rape that woman. He was probably going to rob the store, you know. Um, uh, and and I, 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 I take I take offense to, to, to those projections uh, as a victim. Um, that young man was scared. Um, and and abused and murdered. Uh, thank you. I mean, my line. Much obliged, Mo in Dallas. Um, hopefully, that's one of we've been on the air for 13 years. Hopefully, we've not just been here to name call and grouse and be in conflict with other victims. Uh, hopefully, people can use the program when they call in. If we have white guests uh, to, in a codified manner, ask questions and interpret, process the answers for logic, truth. Uh, and then we're speaking with other uh, victims of racism, uh, being codified, being courteous, uh, and trying as best we can to avoid having uh, conflicts, arguments, that sort of thing uh, with victims. Because that is, you know, that is what is intended. Uh, racist man, racist woman, racist child. They've invested so much uh, in us being discourteous with each other, blaming each other, being hostile uh, with each other when they whites are the problem. So, yeah, glad to hear it. Uh, hopefully people can, you know, take some of, if it's constructive, um, some of the techniques for trying to minimize conflict with other victims. Take that, utilize that when you go out and speak with other folks, wherever you happen to uh, be at. Uh, at least modeling codification and uh, minimizing conflict with other black people. Um, let's see. I thought that was important to the uh, it's just concluded like it's take accepted as fact that Deontay Wright was going to kill her partner. Like, how do we know that? Maybe he was just trying to escape. They say he had a warrant. I guess Mr. Fuller might add in no fee uh, fleeing, fussing, fighting, all the rest of it. Like uh, comply, just comply. You got a warrant like, hey, just have to deal with it like uh Ain't no escape, nowhere to run, might end up dead, happens frequently, just comply. Black people running should be real, you know, oh, and that's probably another illustration of no, black people probably are not doing a whole lot or not doing enough effective conversing with each other about what racism, white supremacy is, 
how it works and different codes, strategies uh, for staying alive, minimizing the chance that we're harmed as best we can uh, in different environments. So lots, lots more work to be done. Uh, Let's see. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, Again, we'll be reading Lucky starting Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. You can check uh, the Facebook page, the uh, social media as well uh, if we will have some programs before then, but at minimum, I'm looking forward to Thursday. Miss Seabolt's book, Lucky. Anthony Broadwater will get lots and lots uh, of segments about Mr. Broadwater uh, as we go through the book. Uh, so we can actually hear uh, black 16 years he served unjustly. Didn't do a thing. 16 years. You have to be in prison. Disgraceful, that word again. Chainful, there we go. Uh, other folks with us have commentary they want to get in. Lines should be open. Can I be heard? Z's mom. She was one of our volunteers. She was going to help pitch in to read uh, Lucky, and now we don't have to. We can do other things with our time. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, um, I wanted to say about um, Irene, um, about her son. Uh, I have two cousins who do a lot of weightlifting and weight training, and they're vegan. And um, a, a good way to maybe, like, have him more motivated to eat a plant-based diet or maybe to tell him that in terms of like muscle um, regeneration, because right. The whole point of building muscle is to, is like you tear the muscle and then it recovers. It recovers more easily. If you have a plant-based diet, if you're eating like hemp seeds, chia seeds, if you're eating like, um, I think it's called cruciferous uh, vegetables and things like that. So, because those things have um, a lot more nutrients, so it helps in muscle regeneration. So that may motivate him to kind of um, be more interested in a plant-based diet. Thank you. Great point. Excellent point. Um, I know some other folks even said um, switching over to a plant-based diet like she was talking about breaking those muscles down that they noticed you don't have as much of that lactic acid build up in your muscles where when you go and you've been working out rigorously where you feel really sore the next day and all that by just switching your diet you're not eating all that chicken and beef and all that um i forgot everybody's talking about uh being old but when you eat those cruciferous vegetables you get a more alkaline diet as opposed to eating a lot of meats where it's going to be more acid uh, and you can notice that with your body and just not having all of that and that's something I can say personally doing lots of yoga because I switched my diet at the same time that I started doing a really really rigorous uh, yoga practice like three hours a day sometimes more I was not sore uh, and it was 
plant-based diet all the time like it makes a huge difference and i've even uh heard other people or they've shared with me uh how when they eliminate um animal products from their diet and they are working out whether it's lifting weights or whatever it is when they're working out in a really aggressive manner they can feel it they do not have all of that pain and soreness uh in their muscles the following day lots of been a drinking water helps with that too everybody all of us can be drinking more water but lots of benefits to plant-based whole foods diet uh let's see other folks comments observations they want to make sure they get in before we wrap things up uh last few minutes before we call it a program Folks might be satisfied. Double check to make sure I did not uh, forget any of my other notes. And then uh, we'll give folks one last check to make sure I didn't forget anyone. Let's see. The obesity point. Silent. Sure. Got that one. I think they said anything new is difficult. They were talking about that and trying to uh, get people to kind of change up some of their habits. Uh, and what have you. And it's been my experience that in a system of racism, white supremacy, it's getting people to stop practicing racism. That is difficult. But in terms of just things that are new. No, I've not seen that. I've seen where people get excited for new racist jokes, new forms of practicing racism, new video games, all kinds of new things, new roads, all kinds of things. The newness of, hey, mistreatment is old hat as they say racist jokes that's old hat that is difficult because you have a population individuals classified as white who are dedicated to the system of white supremacy so yeah they're not interested in changing that up and trying anything new different than mistreating non-white people anywho uh since we are reading Lucky and it is written by a white woman and I even have suspicions and I think some other folks said they did as well about whether or not this white woman actually was raped. Uh, we're reading the book on Wednesday. I do not think anyone should purchase this book. Uh, so let me know if you would like to get a copy, even though that is kind of a pain have to be, you know, do it all those sending. But uh, people cannot pay uh, for this white woman to write a whole book about raping Anthony Broadwater, and that is a lie. And then they're going to make a whole movie about that, too. May still. Um, but we'll be reading that Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, might be because she's a, a famous fiction author, so this might be one that you can, I don't know, read with your offspring or share and talk about with your offspring, because I don't know if this is going to be like a when I say challenging book, like I don't think this is a book you'll need like a thesaurus and, you know, like a college dictionary to process, uh, to comprehend what's being said. We'll have to, I haven't read it. I haven't read it yet. So we'll have to see. I'll be with it first time with you all. Uh, I don't know if it'll be as constructive as countdown. Wow. I'm so glad that we read the book. If you didn't check it out, it's in the archives. Lots of easy tips. I think it should be mandatory, especially if you're going to have offspring. Oh, you're like, a year years even maybe before you are thinking about having offspring you should check that book out lots of great information just about basics 
how you clean your household, water, cooking utensils, plastic, lots of basic cigarette smoking, cannabis consumption, lots of really important things that probably a lot of folks hadn't thought about. So count down Shauna Swan in the archives and white genetic annihilation. Dr. Welsing. Ugh. Uh, let's see. I think I got all of, had two comments on college, but I'll save those for neutralizing workplace racism. Uh, the one that I'll share now, uh, it's so important. Uh, if you have whatever your code is in terms of you've come to your determinations about what would be best in terms of how you function, what you say, what you don't say, what you do, what you don't do, and your environment, be steadfast with regards to carrying out your code. There will be lots of opportunities and encouragement to make other choices, do something else, go along and say what everybody else is saying that is not codified, that is not counter-racist logic, Stick to your code. Uh, I was talking to some folks who are in school, cows listeners, uh, and they were just talking about different situations where they would have their code and wouldn't follow through. We talked about that before, like some of the times where we'll be codified and we'll have an idea about what we're supposed to do. And then we don't actually do that. And then it ends up producing problems. If you've invested the time and counter racist logic, to come up with behavior patterns that are going to serve you well, minimize the likelihood of unnecessary problems being produced, help minimize the likelihood of racism being practiced against you. Do that. Don't do it to the last moment. And then and I'm just going to go along with everybody else. Everybody else is just going through the same racism, white supremacy, not using logic and just hoping for the best. You don't want to be in that group. You want to have you invested the time. You came up with the strategies, trust your logic. I would much rather be doing, you know, I was attempting to follow some sort of counter racist logic and maybe I need to change the logic. Maybe I didn't think things through all the way, as opposed to, I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. If I had done that, it would have been fine, but I didn't do it for whatever reason. And then they ended up being a problem. And that is very common. Stick to your counter racist logic, even when you are persuaded to do otherwise. Follow logic. Folks are satisfied. You assume everyone is good for the evening. Uh, much obliged for all the folks who tuned in live and or archives. Hopefully it was worthy of your time and energy. We'll be back for the book club at minimum on Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Lucky Alice Seabold. Again, if you need a book uh, until justice at gmail dot com, we should not be purchasing a book by a white person suspected racist under these circumstances. Uh, that's it. Sobriety would be best alcohol, cigarettes, smoking, cannabis, whatever. Sober, high functioning brain computer. In addition to being sober, if you are going to be out and about, we're not doing the confrontations with strangers. If you see somebody being hostile and rowdy in public, exit. You have no idea if this is Kyle Rittenhouse. This person is armed assault rifle at the ready and or if this person has an entire armed entourage 
If you didn't leave your house, prepare to die and or kill immediately. Exit. You can call the enforcement officers or whatever you need to do as you are vacating the premises. Uh, in addition, if you're going to be in a vehicle, in addition to being sober, buckled, you are not on the cell phone. Uh, just trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with the likes of Kim Potter, Mark Furman. Just doing the small things that we can, and we need all of our attention to be mindful about what is happening around us. That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately wanted to make sure I got this in at the beginning of the program I forgot we'll do it at the close any cows listeners victims of white supremacy uh, in the area of Kentucky who uh, were impacted man it's just been extreme weather even after another by the tornadoes in the area I think they said it could be 100 casualties. Uh, hopefully no cows listeners, no victims of white supremacy were impacted, but certainly uh, thoughts to the folks in that area. Uh, hopefully you are in a safer location, uh, getting dry and getting things together as best you can and on the road to a recovery. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Ah.